This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 181st edition of the program. This is Friday, February 22nd, and before we get into the news stories, I want to take a moment to thank all of our newest Patreon and PayPal contributors, all of which signed up just this last week to either support us for the first time or increased their monthly pledge, and that includes Carolyn Ornelas, Chris Butts, Joe Pernice, John Eric Allen, Marcus Kinland, Patrick Chi. Ronald Unger, Stas Goberman, and Tina Cross. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to support the program, you can do so by visiting humanistreport.com support or by checking out patreon.com forward slash humanist report. And pretty soon we will have membership options on YouTube itself. So on today's episode, first, Bernie Sanders is back. So we'll talk about the launch of his 2020 campaign, President Trump's reaction to the launch of his 2020 campaign, the media's reaction to Bernie's 2020 campaign, and pretty much anything you need to know about Bernie Sanders' 2020 campaign. We'll also talk about Bernie's message to Howard Schultz. After he basically threatened to hold the Democratic Party hostage if they nominate someone like Bernie Sanders. We'll talk about CNN's town hall with Amy Klobuchar and other 2020 candidates that seem to be competing to be the most boring presidential contenders of the race. We'll also talk about how The View hosts were warmongering in a recent interview with Tulsi Gabbard, Andrew Yang's stance on free college, as well as CNN's decision to hire a Trump loyalist to oversee their 2020 election coverage. So all of that and more will be covered on today's program. Hopefully you guys will enjoy the show. The day has finally come and I have been waiting impatiently for this to happen. So as you all know by now, because I'm the last person to talk about it, as is always the case with issues, Bernie Sanders announced that he is in fact running for president again. And to just show you the impact that he's already having on American political discourse, within the first four hours of his announcement, he already raised more than $1 million. And halfway into the day, more than 100,000 different people have already contributed to his campaign. He already received his first endorsement from a U.S. Senator, Patrick Leahy, from his home state of Vermont. And CNN has already announced that they are giving Bernie Sanders a town hall. So needless to say, Bernie Sanders is undoubtedly hitting the ground running, and he launched his campaign with an ad that I think is basically perfect. Not only does it focus almost exclusively on policy substance, but he also boasts about the accomplishments that he's had, such as getting Amazon to raise their workers' wages, but he makes it so that way the political revolution is front and center and makes it so that way this is a movement that has accomplished all of these things that has elevated these issues like Medicare for All, not him. Take a look. Real change never takes place from the top on down, but always from the bottom on up. Bernie Sanders' healthcare for all idea is gaining steam. Free tuition, free college tuition, free tuition champion, Senator Bernie Sanders. 
Bernie Sanders added, the greatest threat to national security is climate change. The future of our planet is at stake. Sanders taking on Amazon. Bernie Sanders has been consistent hammering about income inequality. Nobody in America works 40 hours a week should be living in poverty. So our economy is rigged. We have a campaign finance system which is corrupt. Sanders leading the charge to stop war against Yemen. The first time ever the Senate has voted to end an unauthorized war. The fight against injustice has been the work of his life. Jobs and education, not jails and incarceration. We are not going to retreat on women's rights. Sanders pushing a bold agenda that includes protecting DACA recipients and comprehensive immigration reform. You don't rip little children away from the arms of their mother. A major announcement from Amazon. Amazon will raise its minimum wage to 15 bucks an hour. 350,000 workers, thousands of workers at Disney World will get raises. It's a victory for Bernie Sanders. It's a victory for all workers. Brothers and sisters, we have a lot of work in front of us. If we are prepared to stand together, there is no end to what the great people of our nation can accomplish. That was an amazing ad, and I've already watched it like three times, Um, not just because I'm preparing for this segment, but because it's just that good. People really need to look at what he's doing here and take notice for future campaigns, because this is what we want to see. We want nothing but policy. We want you to hit us over the heads with policy, and that's exactly what Bernie Sanders is doing, and when you go to his merch store, he has a shirt that literally has this policy platform on that shirt so he's giving me everything that i want and this is to be expected but there's something different about bernie sanders this time this is what's different this time around what's going to be different this time we're going to win we are going to win hell yes i am fired up this is really the best news to wake up to and um yeah, I, I woke up to Bernie Sanders trending, already breaking fundraising records, surpassing Kamala Harris in her first day, because I'm on the West Coast. The East Coast people always get this news first, but you know, it's just, it's incredibly exciting, and for the first time in a while, I actually do feel hopeful again. Now, I do want to get into his platform, because it's largely the same, but there's a lot of really important updates. So as Jeff Stein points out, Medicare for All is, of course, Part of his platform, a Green New Deal, a $15 minimum wage, real criminal justice reform, tuition-free public colleges and universities, breaking up the biggest banks, gender pay equity, paid leave, lowering the price of prescription drugs, expanding Social Security, specifically lifting the cap on Social Security, saving unions, incredibly important, passing the DREAM Act, and additionally, aides have mentioned that he's supporting background checks and an assault weapons ban, affordable housing for all, infrastructure spending, opposing the military-industrial complex, which is vague, but it's new, and I expect a really hashed-out, complex and thorough foreign policy plank. His criminal justice plank includes legalizing weed, abolishing private prisons, and ending cash bail, and major police department reform. And on top of all of that, 
a lot of people are commending him for his choice as to who will be his campaign manager. That individual is Faiz Shakir, and basically everyone is saying that Bernie Sanders is serious because he's choosing this person, because this individual knows exactly what he's doing. He is a powerhouse in Washington, D.C., and I feel very confident that Bernie Sanders made the right decision, and also I don't want the symbolism to be ignored here, because Faiz is a Muslim, and he is the first Muslim campaign manager, and he's running the campaign of potentially the first Jewish president. That sends a powerful message to the world. A very powerful message. So, um, this is all really, really just, it's so incredible. It's inspiring. I've already donated. Um, I know a lot of people that have donated. And I want to make something very clear here. This isn't going to be the type of race where we all just sit by and we promote Bernie Sanders via social media. This may very well be our last chance to get real political reform, to have a real political revolution. So I would encourage you to go to berniesanders.com and donate. If you can't afford $27, then donate $1. Because every single penny is going to help fuel what could be the biggest grassroots campaign in American history. And I really want you to consider getting involved. Sign up to Phone Bank, sign up to Canvas, sign up to volunteer for Bernie Sanders in a multitude of different ways. This is incredibly important because this isn't going to be something where it's just going to happen. We have to fight for this. It's not a foregone conclusion. If you want Bernie to become president, we have to fight for this. And if he does become president, the fight just begins. So we have a lot of work ahead of us. And this is only the very beginning. And shortly, within about a week or so, I will be bringing on grassroots activists to discuss what you can do and give you some advice as to how you can help elevate Bernie Sanders. So um, I'm fired up. I'm ready to go. This is going to be the fight for our lives, both literally and figuratively, because a Bernie Sanders is only going to come around once in a generation if we're lucky. So, and when I say a Bernie Sanders, I mean a politician like Bernie Sanders, a real revolutionary. So, now is our chance to really make a difference. So, what I will leave you with is some words from Bernie Sanders in his announcement video. He did a separate video, uh, different from the ad, where he basically just talks about what he wants to accomplish. Here's a clip of that. I'm Bernie Sanders. I'm running for president. And I'm asking you today to be part of an unprecedented grassroots campaign of one million active volunteers in every state in our country. Our campaign is not only about defeating Donald Trump, the most dangerous president in modern American history. It is not only about winning the Democratic nomination and the general election. Our campaign is about transforming our country and creating a government based on the principles of economic, social, racial, and environmental justice. Our campaign is about taking on the powerful special interests that dominate our economic and political life. I'm talking about Wall Street, the health insurance companies, the drug companies, the fossil fuel industry, the military-industrial complex, the private prison industry, and the large multinational corporations that exert such an enormous influence over our lives. Our campaign is about redoubling our efforts to end racism, 
sexism, homophobia, religious bigotry, and all forms of discrimination. Our campaign is about creating a vibrant democracy with the highest voter turnout of any major country on earth, while we end voter suppression, Citizens United, and outrageous levels of gerrymandering. Our campaign is about creating a government and economy that works for the many, not just the few. Brothers and sisters, if we stand together, there is no limit to what we can accomplish. I hope you'll join me. Thank you very much. So it is clear, Bernie Sanders' 2020 campaign launch sent shockwaves all throughout the American political establishment. And everyone is feeling the burn after they noticed that he was able to raise an astonishing $6 million in small donations, averaging $27 each, all within the first 24 hours. And not only does he have just the political class terrified, but he even has Donald Trump shaking in his boots, who proceeded to send out this fundraising email begging for money once he saw how much Bernie Sanders managed to raise within the first day of his campaign launch. So he's terrified, and he should be. Because Bernie Sanders is now stronger than ever, and his base is more fired up than ever. So to say that Bernie Sanders' campaign launch was a success, I think that would be an understatement, because it was more than a success. It surprised even me, who was expecting it to be huge. Now, in addition to him having a really successful rollout, we're also beginning to see Bernie's team take shape. And we learned the first day that ACLU political director Faiz Shakur would be joining the team as Bernie Sanders' campaign manager. But we're also learning that Bernie Sanders' national campaign co-chairs will include a team of progressive all-stars such as Nina Turner, Ro Khanna, Carmen Yulin Cruz, who, if you'll all recall, is the mayor of San Juan, Puerto Rico, and she's not just one of the strongest voices for Puerto Rico, but she has not been afraid to stand up to Donald Trump's bullying. So let's all just take a moment to kind of step back and reflect on what all has transpired since Bernie Sanders decided to announce that he's running for president. First of all, we have confirmation that his base is unquestionably with him. And this news comes after we were told in December of last year that Bernie Sanders has lost his 2016 mojo. Turns out, that's not the case. We're also learning about Team Bernie 2020, and it's better than I could have expected. He also has since received the endorsement from Danny freaking DeVito. And when it comes to how he's doing in the first straw poll since he decided to announce, well... I'm just going to let Chuck Todd of MSNBC's Meet the Press explain to you just how well Bernie Sanders is doing. You saw Kamala got a bump, Warren got a bump, but my word, Sanders jumped to 44. It's the highest number he had had as they've been testing this so far. And I guess it's just a reminder of how big his base is and how big his potential is on the progressive front. I mean, Elizabeth Warren still has her work cut out if she's going to grab the Sanders supporter. That was absolutely amazing. So make no mistake about it. America is feeling the burn and the political establishment is starting to take notice. So let's be clear. Bernie Sanders is the front runner this time. And 
I really don't think it's too early for us to start speculating about who he'd select as his potential running mate. And we don't really have to speculate because he described his ideal running mate in an interview with Jen Uger of TYT. Uh, I think we would look uh, for somebody who is uh, uh, maybe not of the same gender that I am. Uh, and maybe somebody who might be a couple of years younger than me. And somebody who can take the progressive banner as vice president and carry it all over this country uh, to help us with our agenda and help us to rally the American people. I don't know about you guys, but to me, it kind of sounded like he was describing either Tulsi Gabbard or Nina Turner. And either one of those ladies would be amazing. That would be a phenomenal ticket. It'd be the dream team right there. Now, I don't necessarily know that Nina Turner wants that job, but either way, if Tulsi goes on to secure the Democratic Party nomination, I think she'd probably select someone like Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. So either way, we may see a Sanders-Gabbard ticket, which would be great because it just rolls off the tongue. But, you know, my ideal dream team would be Bernie and Nina Turner. And, um, you know, we'll see. Either way, I like what Bernie Sanders is thinking about because he's describing people who we already can point to with the progressive acolytes. I'm excited. That's all I'll say because let me just say this. Even if it's going to be the case that we all are going to have to work very hard in spite of this momentum, we're going to have to not just observe but organize, put in the time and effort to actually get him elected, go beyond just caucusing and voting for Bernie. We're going to have to organize. We're going to have to knock on doors and phone bank for him. So we know what's at stake here. We know what we have to do. But let me just also tell you this. Really take a moment to reflect on this and soak it all in. Because under the Trump era, this has been hell for so many Americans. It's been a really dark time in America for a lot of us. So it's really nice to just see that there's a light at the end of the tunnel for the first time in years. It's really nice to feel optimistic again. It's really nice to know that we may actually have a future that isn't an apocalyptic hellscape. And that's all thanks to Bernie Sanders. So this is only the beginning, but needless to say, he's off to an amazing start. And I'm not surprised that he's off to an amazing start, but it's still just refreshing to see it in action. Bernie's back, and I couldn't be happier about that. Since Bernie Sanders announced that he is running for president again, it is very clear that the establishment right now is terrified. This includes media elites, this includes the political class, this includes oligarchs, because they see Bernie Sanders isn't playing around this time, and also they probably see that his base knows what they have to do to get him elected. And that is proven when you look at the amount of small dollar donors he got in the very first day, more than a hundred thousand. That is absolutely madness. It's crazy. So if you don't like Bernie Sanders, then you should be very afraid right now because he clearly will be a force. So everyone's terrified right now. And another individual who also seems to be scared is Donald Trump because he actually was asked about Bernie Sanders running for president again. And it was 
pretty strange that Donald Trump didn't take this time to attack Bernie Sanders. He didn't attack him politically. He didn't attack him personally. He actually chose to compliment Bernie Sanders. And we can only speculate as to why that's the case, and we'll do that. But first, this is what Donald Trump said in response to Bernie Sanders running. Oh, Bernie Sanders is running, yeah, that's right. Uh, personally, I think he missed his time. But I like Bernie because he's the, he is one person that, you know, on trade, he sort of would agree on trade. I'm being very tough on trade. He would suffer on trade. The problem is he doesn't know what to do about it. We're doing something very spectacular on trade. But I wish Bernie well. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how he does. I think what happened to Bernie uh, maybe was not so nice. I think he was taken advantage of. He ran great four years ago. And he was not treated with respect by Clinton. And uh, that was too bad. I thought what happened to Bernie Sanders four years ago was was quite sad as it pertains to our country. So we'll see how he does. You got a lot of people running, but only one person's going to win. I hope you know who that person is. Goodbye, everybody. I don't know what it is about Bernie Sanders that makes Donald Trump feel apprehensive about attacking him, but whenever he talks about Bernie Sanders, he really doesn't take shots at him. I mean, he's referred to him as a communist before, like an idiot. He's called Bernie Sanders crazy Bernie before, but by and large, when you compare how he responds to Bernie and how he responds to everyone else, I mean, the difference is night and day. And I think it's clear it's because Donald Trump is afraid of Bernie Sanders because I don't know what it is, but whenever Bernie Sanders comes up, Donald Trump very conspicuously avoids criticizing him. In fact, he went out of his way to compliment Bernie Sanders here. And if you know anything about Donald Trump, if you learned about him in 2016, we know that he was glued to the polls. So he likely read those polls where they were asking people about hypothetical general election matchups between him and Bernie, and he probably saw that it looked like Bernie Sanders would have won in the event he won the Democratic Party's nomination if the DNC didn't rig it against him. So I think Trump knows Bernie would have won, and I think he probably still knows that Bernie is probably going to be his biggest competition. Because I think whoever wins they have a fairly decent chance at defeating Donald Trump. That is when we're talking about who becomes the Democratic Party's nominee. But I think we all know Bernie Sanders is the best bet. He's not only the best bet politically for social democracy and a political revolution, but he's our best bet specifically at defeating Donald Trump. And Donald Trump probably knows that he sees the writings on the wall i don't think that donald trump is just refraining from criticizing bernie because he has this respect for bernie because he's also anti-establishment albeit on the opposite side of the political spectrum no i think donald trump is scared and you could really see it all over his face when he was choosing his words very carefully when speaking about bernie sanders and that's something that donald trump never does so of course it's the case that when speculating it's perfectly reasonable to deduce that trump is probably terrified because he knows if bernie sanders wins the democratic party nomination he may be a one-term president. And he said that he sort of agreed with Bernie Sanders on trade, but as he became president, well, it's clear that Donald Trump doesn't actually feel the same way about trade as Bernie Sanders does, because even though Trump campaigned against the TPP, 
Well, what did he do? He tried to construct bilateral agreements as opposed to multilateral agreements that look just like the TPP with Asian countries. So he's a liar. You don't actually agree with Bernie Sanders, Trump. You don't know what you're talking about. Second of all, he talks about how the DNC rigged the race against Bernie Sanders in 2016. And by doing that, you know, I'm glad that he is talking about this issue because, you know, it's important. This is something that the political establishment oftentimes likes to downplay and not mention. But I don't think it behooves us to have Donald Trump say this because then that that lends credence to the false claim that, oh, this was about sexism and, you know, the race wasn't rigged. This was, you know, Bernie Sanders trying to stop the first female president ever from being elected and anyone who says it was rigged, they're just sexist. And even though that's not true, we already know that the establishment is going to try to use this against us. But with that being said, they're going to do it anyway, so it really doesn't matter. But by and large, um, just getting back to the overall point, it's very clear to me anyways that Donald Trump is terrified. And um, he should be, because Bernie Sanders is coming, and this time, we're not playing games. It's Bernie 2020 all the way, and we're coming for you, Donald Trump, so look out. If you're one of the many individuals that followed Bernie Sanders' 2016 campaign, then you were probably already expecting the media to pounce as soon as he announced that he was running again in 2020. And like stank on shit, they were right there as soon as he announced. In fact, even before Bernie Sanders announced, once he was hinting that he might run again back in December of last year, they were already trying to convince us that Bernie Sanders had lost his 2016 mojo or that Beto was the new Bernie. And the day he announced, we had this gem from the Washington Post. Bernie Sanders is probably just another one-hit wonder. Despite running second in most early polls, Sanders is likely to find that he can't recapture the magic once he goes back out on tour. We also had another Washington Post columnist assure us that Bernie Sanders' time has come and gone. Except if you fast forward just a couple of hours after these articles were published, they learned that that wasn't the case. Because Bernie Sanders isn't a one-hit wonder, his mojo certainly isn't gone, and neither is the magic because we all learned that Bernie Sanders managed to raise $6 million within the first 24 hours. So everything that they told us would happen, or more specifically, wouldn't happen with regards to Bernie, it happened. He raised $6 million, and you have to understand why that's so important. That's the metric that they use, people in D.C. use, to gauge just how viable a political candidate is. But after he raises millions of dollars and proves them all wrong, well, now what are they going to say, seeing that he should theoretically be successful by their own standards? This is what they're saying. Why Sanders' money haul doesn't mean very much. For someone with nearly universal name recognition, an extensive donor list, and a long run-up to his announcement, Sanders' haul shouldn't impress knowledgeable political watchers. Should Joe Biden announce, I bet his 24-hour fundraising total will dwarf Sanders' total. A former vice president shouldn't have to lift a finger to trigger a flood of money. They are consistently moving the goalpost, all to try to downplay Bernie Sanders and undermine him. Because at first, his mojo's gone, guys. There's no there there. Turns out that was wrong, and he just raised $6 million within the first 24 hours. Well, 
that's not a big deal because Joe Biden can probably outraise him. They're always going to come up with some reason as to why Bernie Sanders isn't viable and why he's not a credible candidate and why he should just go away forever and hide his face. But you see, the problem with all of these comically bad takes is that they are clearly getting desperate and they are now wearing that desperation on their sleeves because you can't possibly try to pee on our legs and tell us it's raining. You can't possibly say that there's no there there when there's clearly a there there. Hell, even Chuck Todd recognizes what is happening right now. He may not understand it fully, but he at least sees that something is going on that everyone else in the mainstream media is failing to recognize. In his campaign's first 24 hours, officially, Sanders recorded nearly $6 million in donations from more than 250,000 individuals in all 50 states. $6 million in 24 hours. The average donation, $27. The Sanders campaign also says it has commitments for $600,000 in recurring monthly donations, which is bad news for any presidential contender who hopes Sanders 2020 would be a shadow of the Sanders 2016 effort. Yeah, I mean, you just can't downplay that if you want to be taken seriously. Raising six million in 24 hours is astonishing. It's an amazing feat for any presidential candidate. But Bernie Sanders did it all from small donors, with the average being $27 per person. So what are they doing after seeing the success that was the launch of Bernie's 2020 campaign now? Well, as Walker Bragman puts it, they're trying to bargain with us. And as one columnist for The Guardian asks, why vote for Sanders when you can have Elizabeth Warren instead? (laughs) (laughs) Look, I see that you guys are still super excited about Bernie, but don't you want this new shiny progressive here that we're trying to dangle in front of you? I mean, it's just amazing. I mean, we love Elizabeth Warren as progressives, but I mean... I don't know. Why would we want to have Bernie Sanders over Elizabeth Warren? The same reason why we'd prefer Nikes over Crocs. The same reason why we'd prefer Beats by Dre over Deets by Nani. It's because Bernie Sanders is the real deal and Elizabeth Warren is the generic brand. She's the backup singer, okay? They need to understand this. Bernie Sanders is Michael Jackson. Elizabeth Warren is Tito. Bernie Sanders is Justin Timberlake. Elizabeth Warren is Joey Fatone. Bernie Sanders is Kendrick Lamar. Elizabeth Warren is Lil Pump. Bernie Sanders is Beyonce. Elizabeth Warren is Kelly Rowland. I can go on and on. Bernie Sanders is Mario. Elizabeth Warren is Luigi. Bernie Sanders is Christian Bale Batman. Elizabeth Warren is Ben Affleck. (laughs) Bernie Sanders is the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Elizabeth Warren is DC. (laughs) bernie sanders is terminator 2 elizabeth warren is terminator (laughs) 1 oh i don't know why this is so much fun but i'm really enjoying myself here
two hours later. I think you get the point. But do you understand? They're trying to bargain with us now. They're trying to get us to go for the pseudo-Bernie as opposed to the real Bernie. And as this Quartz article argues, Bernie Sanders fights a sea of better Bernies for 2020. You know how all of you progressives just love Bernie Sanders so much? Well, what if I told you, get this, that there was someone else out there who's not Bernie Sanders, but is instead copying everything that Bernie Sanders is saying and doing? Why don't you want that instead? (laughs) 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 So I don't think that they realize what they're doing here. They're tacitly admitting that Bernie Sanders is the standard bearer for American political progressivism. He is the representative of the modern American left. But wait, because as this political columnist asks, can Bernie Sanders survive the modern left? I know what you're thinking. This is ridiculous because Bernie Sanders is the embodiment of the modern left, right? Well, in this article, it goes on to quote rich limousine liberals like Stephen Colbert, who ripped Bernie Sanders for being an old white man, and also Neera Tandon, who incorrectly claimed that Bernie Sanders stated that people's identities don't matter. He never said that. And what's interesting is that the article makes no mention of the fact that numerous polls now show that Bernie Sanders actually has the highest approval rating among women and among marginalized minorities. But, I mean, he's an old white man, so you shouldn't like him. It's almost as if, I mean, it seems to me anyways, that this entire Bernie bro narrative was something that was fabricated and constructed by Democratic Party elites, all to distract us away from the fact that Bernie Sanders was performing exceptionally well back in 2016 among millennials. And maybe they're doing this to try to turn off minority voters. Oh, wait, it seems like that because that's literally what's happening here. But unfortunately for them, that's just not going to work anymore because Bernie's mostly female, mostly POC base is speaking out on Twitter. They're demanding now that they not be erased and for all the people who perpetuate this false Bernie bro narrative to stop insinuating that his base is exclusively straight white males. But in spite of all of that, they still want you to believe that because he's old and white, well, his base must also be old and white as well. That is factually incorrect. And by doing that, you are perpetuating racism and sexism that you often speak out against. You're erasing the visibility of millions of women and people of color and LGBTQ people like myself who actually believe in Bernie Sanders' message. But the reason why they keep trying to perpetuate this myth and this false narrative really is because it serves their interests. Now, in spite of all of everything that's been happening, in spite of what's transpired since Bernie Sanders announced that he's running for president again, the media still wants you to think that this Bernie thing probably isn't going to go anywhere. In fact, one CNN personality in particular, Chris Salizam, He doesn't think that Bernie Sanders can pull it off, and I'm going to play you a video demonstrating why he thinks that's the case, and one of the arguments he's going to use here is one of the dumbest arguments ever. But he's not a Democrat, as if people care about that. Well, you know, I'd love to have Medicare for all for my family, but I just don't know if I could swallow that pill that is voting for someone who's not a Democrat. I'd love to have a $15 minimum wage so I could pay my rent, but I mean, Bernie's not a Democrat, so I don't know if I could vote for that. I mean, they're so out of touch. Now, before I play the Chris Eliza clip for you, 
just for shits and giggles. If you had to guess what the like to dislike ratio would be on that video, just take a moment to guess before I show you. Take a moment. It is absolutely fucking insane. <laughs> it looks like people just don't appreciate obvious political hackery. But with that being said, getting to the clip, Chris is going to tell you that this Bernie thing isn't going to happen and that all the media bias, they're actually right because Bernie's not a Democrat. Now in 2016, the fact that Sanders was a Democrat for convenience never was much of an issue. Clinton ignored Sanders for honestly most of the race and when she did attack him, it was on his voting record on guns and how his support for a single payer healthcare system could mess up the Affordable Care Act. She didn't talk a lot about his party affiliation. But in 2020, voters will have to ask themselves this question. With lots of people running for the Democratic nomination who have been lifelong Democrats, is it worth voting for a guy who, by his own admission, is taking on the cloak of being a Democrat because he knows he can't win as an independent candidate for president? It's a good question. And I don't know the answer to that question. Maybe Democratic voters don't care. Maybe they dated Bernie in 2016, but are going to marry him, politically speaking, in 2020. But count me as skeptical. It's hard to find lightning in the same bottle twice. I see. So he's just going to pretend that Bernie Sanders didn't just raise $6 million in the first day. He's going to pretend that hundreds of thousands of people haven't already signed up to volunteer for Bernie. Okay. That seems to be what they are going to try to do, just... Ignore the facts. This wouldn't be new. But what's very clear is that they will never take Bernie Sanders seriously. And no matter how well he does, they're going to be trying to downplay Bernie Sanders because this is what behooves them. Because if they downplay Bernie Sanders, maybe they can get you demoralized into thinking that voting for him probably isn't really your best choice. You should vote for someone who's actually going to win. That's their goal. And it's also not a coincidence that the same large multinational corporations that run advertisements on all of these mainstream news outlets that are attacking Bernie Sanders are the same donors to the political class that Bernie Sanders is threatening to take on. And it also doesn't help that Bernie Sanders threatens the status quo and they're all in that DC elitist bubble. So they can't hear and see what we all see. They don't know what's right in front of their face. They can't comprehend it. They missed what was happening with Donald Trump. They missed Bernie in 2016 and they're going to miss it again. They're not going to realize what this is until it's too late for them. But that's fine for us, because I think that we don't really have to prove ourselves any longer. Bernie doesn't have to prove himself any longer. We just have to organize, fight, and win. They're going to continue attacking Bernie in the United States, and in the UK, they're going to continue attacking Jeremy Corbyn, and they want you to think that there's no there there, as I put it. So, I mean, look, these hit pieces were 100% expected. And this is all a coordinated attempt to downplay the phenomenon that is Bernie 2020. But all that we can do is continue supporting Bernie Sanders and pushing back against these false narratives, but let them downplay Bernie Sanders. Because if they underestimate Bernie Sanders, then it's just going to be that much more sweet when we prove them wrong and he becomes the nominee and ultimately the president. 
Keep doing what you're doing, MSM, because you're only delegitimizing yourselves in the process and proving to average normal Americans how out of touch you are. Since Bernie Sanders announced that he's running for president again, there's been a lot of really bad takes from the mainstream media, such as the Washington Post calling him a one-hit wonder, or this article from Bloomberg basically laughably saying nobody cares after he just raised $6 million on his very first day, and there's been a lot of pundits in the mainstream media who really aren't too excited about Bernie Sanders, but with that being said, my favorite bad take from the media of course came from Fox News, which is just a bad take machine, and they covered Bernie Sanders in the way that we'd expect them to cover Bernie Sanders, by fear-mongering about socialism, and their argument essentially was... They're going to be the left of Venezuela. 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 And I'm not exaggerating, this isn't just a meme, this is basically what Greg Gutfeld said when he was talking about the launch of Bernie Sanders' campaign. I'm very excited, uh, before I get into his chances, having a socialist call a capitalist dangerous is rich. <laughs> the socialist who fails to see that his platform only ends in misery. Socialism is great at promising something, but has no idea how to fulfill the promise, which is why it always ends up in coercion, misery, and ultimately death. There's, uh, you can look at Venezuela, Cuba, Cambodia, East Germany, Ethiopia, Romania, Poland, USSR. The only sad thing is, all of socialism is ugly and disgusting, but Bernie is likable. He's like your, your crazy uncle who maybe washes his hair once a week, doesn't think it's valuable to wash more. Ha! Got him! So there were so many gems in, in that really quick segment. And by gems, I mean mind-numbingly stupid statements by Greg Gutfeld. And, you know, we're not just going to dwell on the stupidity here because... This is all what we'd expect from Fox News because the response from another panelist is what I really want to focus on, but let's just take a moment to go over what Greg Gutfeld says here. Quote, his platform only ends in misery. He also says socialism ends up in coercion, misery, and ultimately death. I mean... <laughs> If you're going to do propaganda, you maybe don't want to be that hyperbolic, so it's actually believable, but nonetheless, you know, suit yourself. His evidence here for that, by the way, is Venezuela, Cuba, Cambodia, and other countries who all tried socialism and have failed. But in actuality, Bernie Sanders isn't trying to replicate those models of socialism He's a very moderate social democrat who's modeling his policies after the likes of Scandinavian countries, where social democracy is incredibly successful. Denmark, Norway, Sweden, those countries. And furthermore, if you're going to fearmonger about someone like Bernie Sanders, then you also have to explain how there's basically a social democratic party in every single European country, and... That's because social democracy is something that isn't even controversial. It's only controversial in the United States, where we have a right-wing Overton window. But nonetheless, I mean, Greg Gutfeld, he's now going to try to explain this from a position of someone who wants to educate his audience because he is a bad-faith actor. And then he says, even though socialism is bad, Bernie is likable. And the implication is that because Bernie is likable, and since we're so enamored with Bernie Sanders, we can't see the danger that he actually poses in actuality. But no, that's not it. It's not that we're enamored with Bernie Sanders because of his likability. We're enamored with the policies he's talking about. Because when Bernie Sanders says, hey, 
Our neighbors north of the border have Medicare for all, so why can't we have it? That makes sense. When he says maybe it's the case that, you know, four-year colleges are now equal to what high school diplomas were a couple of decades ago and maybe we should make college free that makes sense so it's the policies that we're enamored with not his likability and charisma because bernie sanders as kyle kalinsky puts it he has anti-charisma you see him for what it is he's just an old man who wants to give us health care and education and that's it but i want to get to the real point and why i'm even talking about this because you know, if you're on Fox News, the goal ultimately is to do propaganda at the behest of the Republican Party. But Juan Williams comes in and he completely drops a bomb on this segment and it goes off the rails for all the right reasons because he actually comes to Bernie Sanders' defense and basically tells you all the things that I just told you about. I think that the question is, does he register as a Democrat? It's an interesting one for me because I think for him it would be an identity shift. Yep. I mean, he's always been the Vermont socialist. Uh, and I think it's added to part of his allure in that he's willing to go there and not respond to the taunts from the far right about socialism. And by the way, or just normal people. No, I don't think normal, normal people, people know no. socialism. It's not a taunt. It's a it's a reality that's no. ended in death. No, I don't think you want to say that there are no normal people in Denmark, Norway, England, Germany, France. There are lots of people there. And I don't think you want to say it's not normal people in the United States who back Social Security, Medicare, VA, or That's socialism? All subsidies, socialism. all the government making decisions about how to help people get through it's this a, life. It's in a decentralized now, system. It's yes, different. that's right. So guess what? You want to label all these programs socialists, but maybe they're not. Maybe they're for people in our country, Greg, who are struggling I with am their for finances a safety net, at I'm this not for moment. socialism. But, of socialism. There's so, a but there's a difference at a time when we have rampant income inequality in this country. What does that mean? It, I tell you <laughs> what it means. I'll tell you exactly <laughs> what it means. It means, Lawrence, when you think about it, it's something like 0.6% of, of Americans right now, the top 1%, have more wealth this is not than the true, bottom 60%. But they, they're so there for what, one year. But, but you painted it as a little bit They're there for one yeah, year. Let Katie, 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 Katie have a break. Before we get to a break, can I say something? First of all, Juan, you're wrong. Whoa, 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 Juan, Juan, Juan. Let's, let's just stop. Okay, be quiet. Let Katie talk because you're making too much sense. And if you'll recall, this is Fox News and we're doing an anti-Bernie propaganda segment. So, Katie, please explain why Juan is wrong here. <laughs> I mean, the minute he really starts hammering them, he gets cut off. And this is what you'd expect from Fox News. It's not the first time that it happened because the host there was supposed to rein him in and she was doing just that. And what's interesting is he actually set off this entire discussion by using a particular trigger word, the far right, because he brought up Bernie Sanders and talked about how Bernie Sanders never feeds into the far right narrative about socialism. And that was a trigger to Greg Gutfeld, who said, well, look, it's not the far right who are against socialism. It's just people who are normal, which is when Juan Williams proceeded to dismantle Greg Gutfeld's bullshit argument, saying, I don't think you want to say that there are no normal people in Denmark, Norway, England, Germany, France, and I don't think you want to say there's no normal people in the United States who back Social Security, Medicare, the VA. And that right there is exactly how you want to respond when somebody starts being disingenuous and alarmist and starts fear-mongering about socialism.
Ask them if they like the socialist social security that is keeping their grandmother from sliding into homelessness and poverty. Ask them if they like the socialist paved roads that they drive on. Ask them if they like the socialist fire department. I mean, it's ridiculous. And Greg Gutfeld tried to give himself cover by saying, no, I, I support a safety net, but I just don't support Bernie Sanders' brand of socialism. What is his brand of socialism? Social democracy. Basically saying we look out for the people and we have a more mixed economy where we, we remove the profit incentive from industries that actually can harm us, like healthcare. Like there shouldn't be a profit motive in healthcare. The goal should just be the delivery of healthcare. And if you disagree with that, then you're the radical, Greg. Because 70% of the American people now, including 52% of the base of the party that you do propaganda for, agrees with us, not you. Now, what's interesting is that Katie went on to correct the record in this next clip here after she stopped Juan Williams, and since Juan Williams did so much damage to the argument that Greg Gutfeld was pushing, she had to really basically undo the damage, so she ramped up the fear-mongering to a 10, and she said just the most ridiculous things I've seen with regard to this talk of socialism. Um... <laughs> Because it's not, it's no longer just that Bernie Sanders wants to, you know, inadvertently turn us into Venezuela. No, he likes Venezuela. That's actually what she said. Take a look. There are more millionaires and billionaires now than there ever have been. That's the middle true. class and the mid medium income has gone up and the gap has actually closed between the rich and the poor. Back to Bernie Sanders. Okay, go he's ahead. But I, that's, he's let an me just authentic say, guy. Is, talk about covering over reality. The reality is that right now, I, I just did this last week in a column. Okay, and it I don't said think 7 million point, people but... right now okay. in our country, three months behind on car payments, 40% of the country can't afford it's, an emergency $400 there, there, expense. There are 6 million, there are six million jobs that are unfilled right now. They're in Ameri There are 6 million jobs that are unfilled right now in America. AOC just ran Amazon out of, out of uh, New York, which was going to pay people $150,000 a year. But back to Bernie Sanders. He's an authentic guy selling a fraud. It's a shame he doesn't wash his hair that often because he has lots of bathrooms in three different homes to yeah. wash his hair, right? <laughs> this is a guy who is claiming that the government can take care of you who back in his early days of his socialist screed said that bread lines were a representation of a good government functioning. People actually standing in line and waiting for bread uh, in places like Nicaragua and South America. He wants that kind of socialism. So when you bring up uh, you know, European-style socialism, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about Bernie Sanders, who has embraced Venezuela, embraced Cuba, and has said the definition of a good economy is when people are standing in line begging the government because they were starving for some bread or some soup, whatever's left over. No, th what he's saying is a government that responds to human need is a good government. Okay. But you know what a that goes that back allows to? allows people to get what to the they want deal. and need on their own is a better no, government. No, I'm all for it. But when you are in a situation like we're in in America today, when you have heightened income Juan, what, inequality, what has the New Deal done for American respond. poverty in this country? And by the way, Nothing. Lawrence is on to something. Don't ignore what he said about Bernie being the exact can I ask, opposite can I ask of Donald Trump. The There's, populist energy in the country. I'm, gonna, I'm going to ask Greg. I just love that she interjected and interrupted Juan to try to disprove income inequality. You can't gaslight people about that because we see firsthand how the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting more poor, which is why when you look at public opinion polls, people actually think that the wealthy should pay their fair share. So you're not going to convince us that something that's a fact 
is not actually happening. We see it firsthand. So what are you even talking about, Katie? She then went on to the other usual list of attacks that they have against Bernie Sanders. Oh, he has three houses. Never heard that one before. And for the record, they have two houses, but the third one was inherited by Jane and then one of them was sold. I mean, if you're a member of Congress, you're going to have multiple houses. You make a lot of money as a member of, of Congress. What do they make? Like 180000 a year or something like that? That's a shit ton of money. So if you are working in DC, but you live somewhere else, then odds are you're going to have different houses. She then tried to pretend as if Bernie Sanders wasn't in favor of Scandinavian socialism, and she tried to basically correct Juan by saying, no, 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 you're saying that he wants to make the United States more like Scandinavia, but he actually does want to make it like Venezuela. And I need to read the quote because it's so stupid. So, she said, quote, that Bernie said that breadlines were a representation of good government functioning. People are actually standing in line and waiting for bread in places like Nicaragua and South America. He wants that kind of socialism. So when you bring up European style socialism, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about Bernie Sanders, who has embraced Venezuela, embraced Cuba, and has said the definition of a good economy is when people are standing in line begging the government because they are starving for some bread or soup or whatever's left over. They're making my job so easy. She is making my job that easy. Because you have Bernie Sanders, who's the most popular politician in the country, saying, look, I just want you guys to have the same things that other modern industrialized nations have. And what is her response? He's embraced Venezuela and Cuba. <laughs> <laughs> to say something that dim-witted, you're either intentionally lying or you're just horribly misinformed. And we all know it's probably the former. But thankfully, again, Juan Williams corrected her. And he said, look, Bernie Sanders is claiming that a government response to human need is good government. Not that he thinks bread lines and starvation is bad. Who actually would believe that Bernie Sanders thinks that bread lines is the goal for America? Do you honestly believe that? Of course you don't. You're a smug, disingenuous liar. And by interrupt, interrupting Juan, you're just proving us right because you don't want the correct message to get out, which is why you had to interject with your own bullshit and propaganda. And one last point that he made that I want to touch on here is he says that if we're in a time when there's this much income and wealth inequality, then we need another New Deal type of response to address that. We need to actually respond to the needs of the people. But they cut him off again, of course. Because whenever you start making too much sense on Fox News, they cut you off. Because, again, the goal here is to attack Bernie and do propaganda at the behest of the Republican Party. And propping up Bernie and telling the truth about Bernie, that's not going to behoove Fox News and their advertisers who also donate to the Republican Party. So, of course, they have a vested interest in shutting Juan Williams up. Now, one last clip I'm going to leave you with here is something that Greg Gutfeld said that is comical, and it shows how out of touch he is. The best thing that could happen for Trump 
is to, for Bernie Sanders to get the nomination, mm -hmm. to put an actual bona fide socialist up against a capitalist in a country that created the greatest economic system known to man. What an education it'll be for people in college and high school to learn about what socialism has done in all of these countries. And he's not running just against Trump. He's running against Venezuela right. because while he's out there, Venezuela will be crumbling. God knows what it'll be like in 2020, whether it'll be there or not. So it, we want we want Bernie to be uh, be up there and maybe he can choose another socialist or uh, double socialist. AOC. Socialist square. AOC still too young. You don't want that, Greg. Trust me. You don't want that because this is not going to be an election about the isms. It's going to be an election about the issues. And if the right somehow tries to make this about socialism, then the left is going to make this about fascism because Donald Trump is a president that has a plethora of fascistic tendencies. He was locking children in cages. You don't think we're going to bring that up and warn the American people about the dangers of fascism? So you wouldn't be served well to make this about socialism. Look, this isn't the 1990s anymore. The same old tricks that would have worked then, they're not going to work in 2020. I can assure you of that. And when you look at polls from 2016, all hypothetical matchups showed that Bernie Sanders would have whooped Trump's ass. Now, we're in a different time, but all of that momentum and enthusiasm behind Bernie has not gone away. So I want them to want Bernie to be the nominee because that means they're going to ignore him because they don't view him as a threat. I want them to underestimate Bernie Sanders, but something tells me they don't. Something tells me that they saw those six million in donations Bernie Sanders managed to raise within the first 24 hours and they got afraid which is why they're even doing this segment. Because if you're truly not afraid of someone, you just ignore them. So, um, yeah, this was a great segment. It went off the rails, and Juan Williams, he did a good job here. You know, I'm not too familiar with the rest of his work, but to defend Bernie in a factual way was surprisingly a refreshing thing to see from a Fox News outlet that's just based on doing propaganda for the Republican Party. So Bernie Sanders has pretty much been a target to billionaire Howard Schultz, who's contemplating or really threatening a centrist independent run if the Democratic Party nominates someone supposedly on the far left, what he calls the far left. So he's been targeting Bernie Sanders, essentially threatening to jump in the race and spoil it if the Democratic Party nominates someone who he doesn't like namely Bernie Sanders. So Bernie Sanders finally took the time to respond to Howard Schultz. And it's very clear, one, that he's not afraid of Howard Schultz at all, but two, he's not afraid to explain the very problem with Howard Schultz. The fact that we're all taking him seriously is a problem because it demonstrates that if you have money, then you actually do have political influence and money shouldn't translate into political influence in a democracy. And that's problematic. So I'm going to play a clip from his interview on CBS. However, I can't actually show you the clip because every time I play you a CBS clip, even if it's fair use, I get a copyright strike. So I will give you the audio here and then we'll discuss it. Howard Schultz has now said he would not run as an independent if the Democrats moderate, uh, nominate oh, a moderate. isn't that nice. You raise a good thing. Why is Howard Schultz on every television station in this country? Why are you quoting Howard Schultz? Because he's a billionaire, all right? There are a lot of people I know personally 
who work hard for a living, who make forty, fifty thousand dollars a year, who know a lot more about politics than in all due respect does Mr. Schultz. But because we have a corrupt political system, anybody who is a billionaire who can throw a lot of TV ads on television suddenly becomes very, very credible. So what Mr. Schultz, what is he blackmailing the Democratic Party? If you don't nominate Bernie Sanders, he's not going to run? Well, I don't think we should succumb to that kind of blackmail. The other reason is that he represents an argument that some people make, which is if you're worried about Donald Trump, the Democratic Party to win voters in various parts of the country needs to pick somebody who is not so radical. That's also what his theory represents. Well, I think his deeper theory is, hey, I'm a billionaire, leave me alone. And uh, let me make as much money as I can without paying my fair share of taxes. And let me continue to have undue political fluids, which you are quoting me. All right, here is a billionaire. No one's ever heard of this guy. Well, not many people have. He's a billionaire. He's thinking of running for president. Suddenly, he's a very famous guy. That's, that is a problem with our political system. So that was pretty savage. Because Bernie Sanders, he says, look, with all due respect, I know people who aren't rich who know more than Howard Schultz. And I'm so glad that he pointed this out because at the CNN town hall, even if it may have been harmful because they were essentially inadvertently promoting him, it really did demonstrate that Howard Schultz knows nothing about politics. He doesn't know anything about policy specifics. And by and large, he probably doesn't have really any more political knowledge than the average American. In fact, I think he probably has less because if you have that much money, you've got to be more out of touch than the average person. So this guy's an idiot. And Bernie Sanders says, look, just because you have money doesn't mean that you're going to know what you're talking about automatically. But the fact that, you know, we have this corrupt political system where anybody who's a billionaire who can run a lot of ads becomes credible. That's a problem. That's a huge problem problem and the fact that he's able to essentially use his money and the fame that comes with having said money to blackmail the democratic party that's just that's it's disgusting and bernie sanders responded to that saying what is he blackmailing the democratic party if you don't nominate bernie sanders he's not gonna run well i don't think we should succumb to that kind of blackmail absolutely and in a washington post article where Howard Schultz basically put out a challenge, more like a threat to Democrats, you know, nominate a centrist and I won't run. Well, why would we succumb to that kind of threat? The same article said, well, you know, the more moderate candidates like Joe Biden and Mike Bloomberg can kind of use that threat to their advantage and say, look, if you don't want a spoiler, if you want to defeat Donald Trump, then you should go with a moderate so he doesn't jump in and win. But why would we succumb to that kind of threat? So we can never have anyone who is even center left bernie sanders if you look at this from an international perspective he's center left so we can never get a center left candidate because there's always going to be some billionaire asshole who's going to jump in or threaten to jump in and spoil the race no fuck that and fuck howard schultz and i'm so glad that bernie sanders said this and i'm so glad that he is not backing down and he's calling this what it is it's blackmail now additionally he was asked about the argument you know that if democrats want to win then they need to run someone who is not a supposed radical. And this is what Bernie Sanders says in response to that. Well, I think his deeper theory is, I'm a billionaire, leave me alone, and let me make as much money as I can without paying my fair share of taxes, and let me continue to have undue political influence. And Bernie Sanders, again, is exactly right. Howard Schultz doesn't really have any core political ideology. He has no really driving reasons 
that make him want to run for president other than I'm a billionaire. Please don't raise my taxes. If you do, I'm going to make sure that Donald Trump has four more years as president or do everything I can to ensure that that's the case. And really, it's just, it's despicable. You shouldn't have influence only because you have money. Nobody would be taking him seriously, but the fact that he's a billionaire and can basically buy his way into the race and even subvert the two-party duopoly that speaks to how influential people with wealth are. It speaks to how disgustingly broken our campaign finance system is. Because if you want to run for president, you shouldn't be able to self-finance your way into the race. You should be forced to raise money via grassroots, and self-financing should be completely eliminated. And I really hope that Howard Schultz sees all of the enthusiasm and momentum that Bernie Sanders has. More than 100,000 individual contributions in day one, and more than a million dollars. You may be able, Howard, to buy your way into the race and have the media take you seriously because you're a billionaire, but you will never have that level of grassroots support because you're not with us. Bernie's with us, and we know that he's actually fighting for things that would benefit our lives, and you'd only be fighting for things that would benefit your life and benefit the lives of people who are millionaires and billionaires. Well, I say fuck that and fuck you, Howard Schultz. So by now, it should be evident to pretty much everyone that Howard Schultz is a complete and utter joke, because not only does he lack a political agenda, he doesn't know anything about the policy specifics, and he demonstrated this during the CNN town hall, because he was trying to scold us about the cost of Medicare for All, saying it would cost $32 trillion, for example, when the total cost of our current healthcare system is almost $60 trillion, and Medicare for All would actually save us $2 trillion. Now, that's a more conservative estimate in actuality it would save us anywhere between 5 and 15 trillion but to say oh medicare for all costs 32 trillion he's demonstrating that he doesn't know what he's talking about no our current system costs 60 trillion dollars the 32 trillion number that you're citing all that refers to is the increase in federal spending because obviously if you switch to a single payer system you increase federal spending but state and local spending goes down simultaneously so if you're going to talk numbers then at least try to know what you're talking about at least read the studies that you're going to cite so i wish that that host at the cnn town hall poppy harlow would have just asked him hey howard how much does our current system cost because it would expose him as someone who is ignorant and who's a political fraud. But the point is that Howard Schultz is a joke, and he's basically a whiny billionaire who's only considering running because he doesn't want the Democratic Party to nominate a candidate who is a progressive who would actually raise his taxes. So Howard Schultz isn't even a serious contender. Rather, he's a spoiler candidate whose entire campaign is based on a threat to hand Donald Trump a second term if he doesn't get his way. So his goal here is to bully the entire left, ranging from, you know, the left left to the center left, bully the entire left into nominating a centrist. Because he's made it very clear, he's actually admitting now, if you nominate someone like Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, or even Kamala Harris, I'm gonna run, 
And I'm going to hand this election to Donald Trump. He's not saying that he's going to hand the election to Donald Trump, but he is saying, if you do what I say, then I won't run. And make no mistake about it, that's a threat. And that's detailed in a Washington Post article where he basically says, look, if you want to get rid of me, then you can't nominate a progressive. And as Michael Shearer and Tracy Jan of the Washington Post report, former Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz said Thursday that he would be willing to abandon his presidential ambitions midstream if Democrats nominate a centrist who makes it too difficult for him to win as an independent candidate. Schultz, who made the comments while visiting the Washington Post, has premised his ex exploration of a presidential campaign on the assumption that Democrats are likely to nominate a candidate that embraces what he calls far-left ideas that will turn off enough moderate voters to open space for an independent candidate. He has paid for internal polling that he says suggests he would be competitive in a three-way race against President Trump and a liberal Democratic candidate such as Senator Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, or Senator Bernie Sanders, a more moderate Democratic nominee such as former Vice President Joe Biden or former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg could complicate Schultz's perceived path to victory. I would reassess the situation if the numbers change as a result of a centrist Democrat winning the nomination, Schultz said. Those comments could influence the internal Democratic debate over the best nominee to take on Trump, giving moderates an opportunity to argue that their nomination would minimize the threat of a Schultz bid. So, reading this made me so angry. I cannot even tell you. I was tweeting about this um, on Friday. I was so pissed off because who the fuck do you think you are? Like the gull of this guy. Nominate who I want, someone who's not going to raise my taxes. Otherwise, I'm going to jump in the race specifically to spoil it so Donald Trump gets a second term. And I love how he's trying to say that what he's doing is pragmatic and how Democrats would be, you know, it would behoove them to run a centrist, but we just tried this. If you'll recall, Howard, I don't know what you were doing, but we were all watching Hillary Clinton face plant, and she ultimately lost to Donald Trump. So this isn't up for debate. This isn't hypothetical. We saw what happened when Democrats nominated a centrist. They lost and a reality television show star became the president. So what the fuck are you talking about? That enough moderate voters will be turned off. Republicans nominated a far-right extremist, and Democrats did exactly what you wanted them to do. They nominated a centrist, actually someone who is center-right, and they lost. So what do you have to say about that, Howard? They nominated someone that was theoretically appealing to moderate voters. And what happened? Their base stood home. So this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. And whatever internal polling shows that he would do well in a three-way race against, you know, Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, that's nonsense. You have a 4% approval rating, dipshit. Nobody likes you and nobody takes you seriously and you're not even running on a real agenda. He's not saying, I'm running because I support this incrementalist approach to education or taxes. You don't even have policy specifics at the CNN Town Hall again. You couldn't even say what your proposals were, only that you don't like Trump's proposals and the Republican Party's proposals and you don't like the left's proposals. So you have no real ideas. You have no 
real core base, and yet you think we're going to believe that you're going to be the person to step in and save the day when we all know you're only jumping in the race, or you only would jump in the race to be a spoiler to give Donald Trump a second term, because even if you don't like Donald Trump, you at least know that your taxes won't go up. Whereas with Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, your taxes would go up. So understand that people who are currently butting heads right now, the Bernie supporters and the Kamala supporters, understand we all have a mutual interest here in taking on Howard Schultz because he threatens whoever wins, be it Kamala Harris or Bernie Sanders. If one of them win, then Howard Schultz is threatening to give Donald Trump a second term. So we need to view him as a common enemy and we need to respond accordingly and what i think we need to do is organize a boycott and i'm not talking about individuals who are saying oh i stopped you know um drinking starbucks coffee years ago i'm talking about a real boycott a grassroots level boycott where we have picket signs at every fucking starbucks because if Howard Schultz wants to basically threaten us and say he's going to step in and spoil the election if we nominate someone who he doesn't agree with, then we can play ball too. We can play his game. We can play dirty and we'll just boycott Starbucks and stage a real boycott, not a, you know a conservative boycott where they burn their Nikes or they all just personally commit to not shopping there. An actual boycott where you lose money. Howard, because I believe he still holds a majority uh, shares in the company. So that would personally affect his wallet. And that's what you've got to do. You've got to hit him where it hurts. And that's their wallet. So I was so angry, so angry. How dare you threaten to subvert democracy? You don't even have any real ideas. You're just running to spoil it. What a despicable person you are. Out of all the 2020 presidential candidates, Andrew Yang is one of the few individuals that I'm actually genuinely excited about because he's one of the few people who are actually running on a really bold, progressive platform. Some of the things he's proposing, they're just incredibly ambitious. He is running unapologetically on universal basic income which I love. It's basically social security for all. He's running on Medicare for all. He's running on free marriage counseling for all. He's running on free financial counseling for all. So he has this incredibly bold platform. However, he does have a real blind spot when it comes to the issue of education. That's not to say that he is bad, but generally speaking, when you look at where he stands on education, it almost seems out of character when you juxtapose his views there with all of his other policy proposals. So if he doesn't support free college, the plan that Bernie Sanders is championing, what does Andrew Yang support? Well, if you go to his website and look at his policy platforms, he supports making community colleges affordable for all. So when you attach for all to a policy proposal that doesn't just automatically make it good because this honestly is a plan that is less ambitious than President Obama's proposal because if you'll recall Obama actually wanted to make the first two years of college entirely free. Now there's a reason why this proposal is honestly kind of strange because community college in the first place it's meant to be an affordable alternative to getting an education at a university. So you're already trying to take the most affordable option, make it more affordable. Why not just make it free altogether? Why not just go the extra step and make the first four years of college getting your undergraduate degree entirely free? 
because it's what other countries are doing. And to be more competitive on the international job market, you've got to have a college education. Why stop short of free college when you have all these other bold proposals? UBI, Medicare for all. So it doesn't honestly make sense to me. And I was thoroughly disappointed to learn that this was his decision. However, he recently appeared on an episode of the Joe Rogan Experience, and he explained his views, and he explained why he doesn't agree with this idea that we should make college free. This is what he had to say about it. So our education system um, has a lot to be desired. And one of the things I'm saying is like, uh, is it's making all these kids think that college is the end all be all, and it is not. Yeah, uh, And so that's one issue is that uh, we need to try and prepare kids for different kinds of paths instead of saying college, college, college. Yeah. Because they're going to college, they're getting loaded up with record levels of debt. College has gotten two and a half times more expensive, even though it has not gotten two and a half times better. Uh, and the reason why it's gotten so expensive is because they've just uh, like gotten really bloated administratively. Now, you said before Bernie's like free college for everyone. The problem with that solution is it pretends that college solves the employment problems of young people. Right. And anyone who's coming out of college knows that that's not real. The underemployment rate for recent college graduates today is 44%. So you had like a 50-50 shot if you come out of college, you're doing a job that doesn't really require a degree. And 94% of new jobs created right now are gig, temporary, or contractor jobs that don't have real paths forward or healthcare benefits or the rest of it. But one of the things I've discovered is that we're overemphasizing college, and what we're underemphasizing is technical, vocational, and apprenticeship work. Because a lot of that work, believe it or not, is actually really hard to automate. Like, uh, you know, we're not going to automate an air conditioning repair person or mm -hmm. a plumber anytime soon. So when I hear him talk there, I don't necessarily think that he's wrong, even though he does get a couple of details wrong. He's not necessarily wrong, but the way he talks about college demonstrates that he just has a different worldview than myself and probably a lot of progressives. Because if you truly look at college as just this instrumentally valuable thing that gets you a job. It's just means to an end, getting a job. You go through college just to get a job. If you just conceptualize college and its utility in that way, what he's saying makes sense. What he's saying about, you know, doing more vocational training, that would help you get a job. That makes sense. But what he's underemphasizing here is the intrinsic value in college. College in and of itself is valuable. Because, quite frankly, we want people to get educated because we want them to be more smart. We want an educated populace. So just attending college in and of itself, even if you're not able to get a job in the field that you studied in, the fact that you went through college is beneficial to you as an individual. Look, I'm the first person in my family to go to college and complete college, and the extent that it helped me grow just as a person and learn a lot about myself it really can't be understated. I think that I wouldn't be the person I am had I not attended college. So college in and of itself is incredibly important. And to say that college shouldn't be free, well, in a way you're saying, I don't really think it's that valuable to people who just want to go for the sake of getting an education, even if it won't necessarily help them get a job. And I think that that is fundamentally unacceptable, and it's not a very progressive position because we want people to be able to have the choice to go to college. And just currently, really, college is becoming a privilege. If you're rich, you'll have no problem going to college. If you're poor, well, then you can theoretically go to college, but good luck because you're going to be, you know, burdened with debt basically for the rest of your life. So 
I have a different worldview than him. If you disagree with me and agree with him, that's fine. It's just there's a fundamental disagreement there. And it really it really was disappointing to hear him say that. And I get why he's saying it. He comes from the business world. So his view is going to be heavily influenced from that perspective. But for me, as someone who comes from academia, who is getting my PhD, I think that a college education in and of itself is important. Now, ideally, would we want people to be able to get jobs if they go to college? Of course. But you can't just ignore the value that education has and what it can do to improve someone's life and help them grow as a person. Now, additionally, he does get one detail wrong. He says, quote, the reason why college has gotten so expensive is because it's gotten really bloated administratively. Now, this is actually kind of a right-wing way to view college because college hasn't gotten expensive specifically due to administrative bloat. I mean, you could say that that's part of the problem, but the primary reason why college is so expensive is because we're seeing education cuts, decreases in spending both at the federal and the state level. Because think of it this way, when college becomes more expensive due to cuts to education, what do schools have to do to accommodate that? They have to pass the cost of education onto students. The burden gets shifted from the state to the students, which is why we are seeing all of these tuition hikes. That's basically why college is becoming expensive. It's an oversimplification, but it's the main issue. Does it explain college expenses rising rapidly more so than administrative bloat? Yeah. In fact, I to say that, it really makes me worry that he doesn't fully understand education and the history of education in the United States, because look at the cost of education back in, let's just say, the 60s, for example. You can put yourself through college by working at Taco Bell and come away paying off your debt within like a year or so, and you'd be good. But nowadays, you're basically burdened with debt for the rest of your life. So to say that the cost is increasing due to administrative bloat, that's just, that's incorrect. It's the biggest oversimplification. There's a lot of factors that go to the rising costs of colleges, but the main one, the crux of the issue here, is a lack of money that is going towards education that is being cut off at the federal level and the state level. Now, he gets into student debt. So what is his plan for people who attended college and now have student debt? I was incredibly disappointed here as well. So the the first thing you do is you go to the people that are currently in uh, debt and say, look, we're going to give you a path out. And there are ways to do it. Uh, you know, you can have a uh, payment plan. One of the things I'm proposing is like a 10 by 10, where if you commit 10% of your wages for 10 years, then you're debt free. And that means like, if you're not making a lot of money, then you can save a whole lot. And the the schools at this point have long since forgotten about this these loans because they got paid off already. This is just these financial companies that right. are holding the loans. That's so it, important for people to understand because people think, well, well, if you don't pay them, the colleges are going to go away. No, no. So if, if you're the government, you can be like, hey, loan loan company, guess what? Like, good news, we're going to like take this off. And it's a stimulus because, like you said, we've done a lot of things that were supposed to be a stimulus, like give $4 trillion to the banks and be like, that'll stimulate the economy. Nothing's going to stimulate the economy better than 
getting student loans off the backs of freaking young people because yes. they'll actually do what they're supposed to do, which is actually, you know, spend money in the economy. Take chances. You know, take chances, yeah. start businesses and the rest of it. I mean, one of the reasons why our business formation rates are at multi-decade lows is that we are up to $1.5 trillion in school debt. Anyone who thinks that that's not burdening the economy, I mean, you just got to... So, so President Yang will be like, hey, guys, it's a stimulus, but this time it's a stimulus of people. We're going to forgive some of the student loan debt because half that stuff was generated immorally anyway. A lot of it was just schools, you know, lying about, <laughs> about yeah. just to get people in the door. The, the second thing you do is you go to the schools and say, hey, guys, why are you two and a half times more expensive than you used to be? That's kind of weird because, like, as far as I can tell, there's been no massive quality change. And the reason is that they've hired a lot of administrators. It, it has not gone to faculty. It has not gone to facilities. It has gone to just administrative excess and bloat. And then say, okay, you can do whatever you want, but if you want access to federal loans, which they all rely upon for their life's blood, like without it, they die. If you want your students to have access to federal loans, you have to bring your administrator to student ratio in line with what it was like in the 1990s. And then the schools would scream bloody murder. They'd be like, I can't do that. That's impossible. And you'd be like, well, I, I have a feeling you're going to figure it out. <laughs> they, would, they would start bringing it down. And you would realize it doesn't impact the student experience at all. So why not just cancel that debt altogether? It's just, it's an uncharacteristically disappointing aspect of his platform. Because again, if you have all these bold proposals like universal basic income and Medicare for all, why stop short of free college for everyone and completely canceling student loan debt? Why? And to say that, you know, that's disappointing because he doesn't support student loan debt cancellation, that doesn't even stay the beginning of the issues I have. Because when he talks about his plan, it is thoroughly disappointing. His plan for students with loan debt is one of the things I'm proposing, quote, I'm proposing a 10 by 10 where if you commit 10% of your wages for 10 years, then you're debt free. This is literally the same policy that Hillary Clinton was proposing for debt relief. The only difference was that she would forgive your debt after 20 years and Andrew Yang is proposing debt forgiveness after 10 years if you pay 10% of your income every single month. This isn't bold. This isn't ambitious. This is the same thing that the Democratic Party is proposing. That's not going to solve the issue. You're not addressing the crux of the cause of this student loan crisis here. You're just taking the edge off. Now, he also says the second thing you do here is you go to schools and you say, hey guys, why are you two and a half times more expensive than you used to be? That's kind of weird. And if you were to hypothetically do this, Andrew, they're going to say, well, President Yang, the reason why we're actually 12 times more expensive is because government is no longer investing in education. And to offset that, we have no choice but to pass that cost off to students. So overall, Andrew Yang, you know, when you watch this, you can't not come away thinking that he's incredibly intelligent and for the most part, he knows what he's talking about. But when it comes to college, you know, addressing the student loan debt crisis and his free college plan, it's thoroughly disappointing because he just thinks, look, if you go to college, that doesn't necessarily guarantee you a job. And he's correct about that. But still, he's essentially choosing for you. Well, because I don't think there's any value in education or there's a minimal value in education. Well, I'm not going to subsidize it. We're going to subsidize what I want to. So it's essentially taking away the choice from people who aren't able to attend college. And either wittingly or unwittingly, he 
is viewing education as something that is for the privileged. If you're rich, you can go to college and come away with no debt. But if you're poor, then you can't get an education. And under my administration, I wouldn't necessarily make that easier for you. If you want vocational training, then that's fine. We'll subsidize that. We'll make that easier for you. But if you want an actual college degree, a bachelor's, then I just don't think we should be subsidizing that type of education because instead we should be subsidizing trade schools and training programs for people to get very particular skill sets that they need for very specific jobs. And I think that him saying this, it really demonstrates that he has this particular worldview where he doesn't view education as anything other than a utility to get a job. He has this worldview where education in and of itself, it's not necessarily intrinsically valuable, rather, it's instrumentally valuable. It just is going to be a means to an end for you. It's going to be something that gets you a job and that's it. And if it no longer has that instrumental value, if it's no longer getting you a job, then it's no longer valuable altogether. Now, of course, he's not saying that, but functionally speaking, that's the position that he's taking. So incredibly disappointed here. It's why Andrew Yang is basically number four or five in my presidential ranking. It's because to me, education is one of the most important issues. And regardless, if you think it's valuable or not, if you think it's intrinsically valuable or only instrumentally valuable, the point is that we should allow American citizens to make that choice. And government should invest in education so they can actually make that case or make that choice for themselves, rather. Tulsi Gabbard recently appeared on The View in what has got to be one of the most frustrating and downright baffling segments I've ever seen from the mainstream media when it comes to their coverage and response to progressives. Because not only were they disrespectful, but they smeared her to her face. And while they did this... Anything that she said that was substantive, it went right over their heads. And it really reveals just how ignorant the hosts are. And even someone who isn't usually this bad, like Joy Behar, really disappointed me here. So I'm going to show you the ridiculousness here. But really to grasp just how problematic this entire segment was, I think you really need to get the full context. Because it starts out with Tulsi Gabbard explaining passionately and eloquently so why she is against war it's based on her personal experience as an iraq war veteran this is what she had to say uh as a soldier i deployed with our, our brigade combat team from hawaii i volunteered to deploy with them to iraq in 2005 uh, which was the height of of the conflict there mm -hmm. uh, i served in a medical unit where every single day i was confronted with uh, in a heart-wrenching way, the high human cost of war. Very first thing I did every single morning was go down a list of names of every single American uh, casualty, every single service member who had been injured the day before. And I had to see if any of our uh, brigade soldiers were on that list, make sure they got the care that they needed, or to evacuate them as quickly as possible. But as I went through this list every single day, um, I was struck uh, with the names and the faces of my brothers and sisters who were paying the price uh, for this war. I was struck with their, their families, their loved ones at home, uh, who were so stressed and so anxious uh, for the well-being of their loved ones. Uh, it is those experiences of understanding and knowing firsthand the cost of war, both on our service members, on our veterans, 
uh, as well as uh, the cost on the people in the countries where we intervene, uh, as well as the trillions of dollars, our taxpayer dollars that are spent on waging these wars, dollars that are sorely needed uh, to address the very real urgent needs of, of our families, our communities, our neighbors right here at home. She saw the destruction of war firsthand. She saw how it affects American troops. She saw how it affects citizens in other countries. And that's why she's personally against war. So a follow-up question was asked that I think was probably pretty reasonable. Well, what do you do then if you're against war, but there's also, you know, a humanitarian crisis that the United States could potentially help and maybe save lives. What do you do in that situation? Tulsi again took the time to thoroughly explain why there's really no such thing as a humanitarian war. So should we not get involved when we see atrocities abroad? We have to understand, looking at Iraq, Libya, and Syria, for example, uh, that there are brutal dictators in the world. And unfortunately, there are people who are suffering as a result of that. But in so many examples throughout history, when the United States takes action and intervenes and launches these regime change wars to topple these dictators, the suffering of the people in these countries increases. Uh, their lives are made uh, worse off than they were before. There is far more death uh, and destruction. Uh, Libya is a perfect example. Muammar Gaddafi was toppled. Uh, now, today, we have more uh, terrorist groups in Libya than ever before. We have Libyan people, women and children, being sold in open markets uh, as slaves. So while these wars Which are, we didn't have before when he was which, there? Which I, didn't um, exist before. No? And so so while, you, while sorry, let's just, just finish this one, one point, because uh, we feel for the suffering of people in these countries, and we want to be able to help them. And so many of these wars are, are begun and waged from a, a place of humanitarianism. Yeah. But the reality is, and it's a harsh reality, that there, there is more suffering and more loss of life and more destruction as a result of these wars, which does not serve the people in these countries, nor does it serve our interests and our security. You can't possibly word that in a more clear way. But with that being said, after explaining ourselves and explaining how war, just from a practical standpoint, it doesn't do what we want it to do in terms of aiding humanitarian crises around the world, and also because it causes destruction. After she explained it perfectly well, well, then Meghan McCain decided to smear her to her face. My understanding is you know how I feel about your stance on foreign policy, and when I hear the name Tulsi Gabbard, I think of a sod apologist. I think of someone who comes back to the United States and is spouting propaganda from Syria. You have said that the Syrian President Assad is not the enemy of the United States, yet he's used chemical weapons against his own people 300 times. That was a red line with President Obama. That's our, that is not our enemy. 13 million Syrians have been displaced. So when you say regime change is hurtful for the country, but gassing children isn't more hurtful, it's hard for me to understand where you come from a humanitarian standpoint if you were to become president. Uh, well, you're putting words in my mouth that I've never said. You did not say that Syrian President Assad is not the enemy of the United States. Say it now, clarify. <laughs> the, the issue here is how can we help alleviate the suffering of people? Just really one moment, is he an enemy of the United States? An enemy of the United States is someone who threatens our safety and our security. There is no disputing the fact that Bashar al-Assad in Syria is a brutal dictator. There is no disputing the fact 
that he has used chemical weapons and other weapons against his people. There are other terrorist groups in Syria who have used similar chemical weapons and other weapons of terror against the people of Syria. This is, this is an unfortunate thing that wrenches at every one of our hearts. This is not something I'm disputing, nor am I apologizing or defending these actions. My point is that the reality we are facing here is that since the United States started waging a covert regime change war in Syria starting in 2011, the lives of the Syrian people have not been improved. Their well-being has not gotten to a better place. Their suffering has not decreased. It has increased in addition to the fact that Al-Qaeda is stronger in Syria today than ever before. So not only are we dealing with the fact that this regime change war we've been waging in Syria has not helped the Syrian people, it has made their lives worse off. Bashar it has also, his people it has has also undermined our national security, leaving us in a place where Al-Qaeda is a stronger threat there than they ever have now, been before. Tulsi, Tulsi. And Iran has greater influence in Syria than ever before. Her response to Meghan McCain there was virtually perfect. I don't think I would have changed anything that she said. And also, I don't know that I could have remained as calm after somebody just said that about me. Because Meghan McCain just said, when I think of Tulsi Gabbard, I think of an Assad apologist. Someone who comes back from the United States spouting propaganda from Syria. Let's just put this into context here. Who is Meghan McCain? She is the daughter of a warmonger who has no real talent and only got that job as a host because she was born into a family that is very rich and very powerful. So for you to smear a veteran who is anti-war as an Assad apologist when she just explained to you why she's against regime change wars around the world, including in Syria, that's a different level of disgusting. That's a level of gaslighting that is so disingenuous, so absurd, that anybody who listens to Meghan McCain should immediately acknowledge that she is a political fraud and she knows nothing about what she's talking about. And what's frustrating is that you say all of this about Tulsi Gabbard after you just heard her, I showed you the clips, make a passionate defense as to why we shouldn't intervene. Yes, Assad may be doing these horrible things to his own citizens and that's bad. There are dictators around the world who are constantly doing horrible things. There is a genocide going on currently in Myanmar against the Rohingya. But if we are going to intervene for humanitarian reasons, then one, we'd have to intervene in pretty much most countries everywhere. And two, we shouldn't because we always exacerbate these crises. So not only would we have to intervene everywhere if we believe that humanitarian wars was actually a thing, but we also shouldn't intervene because we obviously make matters worse. She just explained it. She just explained it to you. She explained why she's against regime change in Syria and Meghan McCain still called her an Assad apologist unbelievable but it's gonna get worse believe it or not because after she just had to reiterate the point that she just made that went over megan mccain's head well then anna navarro is going to chime in and ask her about venezuela and then it's going to end on just a laughable just atrocious note why are you so against uh, intervention in venezuela not military intervention but what we are doing because every time the United States, and particularly in Latin America, has gotten involved in regime change, 
using different tools to enact that regime change, there have been both short and long-term devastating impacts. If there are ways that we can work with surrounding countries to try to get humanitarian aid into people there, then we should be doing that. But for the United States to go in and choose who should be the leader of Venezuela, that is not something that serves the interests of the Venezuelan people. That's something that they need to determine themselves. But the U.S. Themselves. is not choosing who's going to be the leader of Venezuela. It's, you know, it's millions of Venezuelans marching on the streets. Just, and so, just but do by, you put military intervention in the same level that you put economic and uh, diplomatic efforts? The United States has used both military, CIA, sanctions and other tools to intervene and enact regime change in countries around the world. Uh, Iran is a great example. Uh, the CIA led a covert operation to overthrow uh, the government in Iran decades ago in Mossadegh. This led to decades upon decades of hardship and suffering and authoritarian governments and has led us to the place where we're dealing with many challenges Do you think today. We're going to we're gonna come back with more from you because I think you have more to say on this and you should. Um, I'm just wondering if this particular position that you take is going to be a popular one in the Democratic Party. Uh, this is a position that I have found many Americans appreciate and understand because we understand that every one of us is paying the price for these regime change wars that are not helping people in these countries and they're counterproductive to yeah. our interests at home. I believe Trump said something similar when he was running, did he not? Am I wrong about that? I'm he may curious. have, but the problem yeah, is not he, has he's not, doing it. he has not carried through. No. He has gone back and, and has uh, uh, broken his promises. So that segment went completely off the rails. Joy Behar literally just tried to compare Tulsi's pro-peace stance to Donald Trump's faux non-interventionism, and then she also topped it all off by saying, I'm just wondering if this particular position you take is going to be popular in the Democratic Party. You're wondering if Tulsi's pro-peace position is going to resonate with the Democratic Party's base? You're really saying that, Joy? Were you not also with us when we were all screaming about the Iraq war? Why would you say something like that when you know it's not true? There's no way Joy Behar believes this because the Democratic Party's base is vehemently anti-war and Barack Obama got elected in part because we were all vocally opposed to the Iraq war. But now you're going to say, well, is this really something that's popular yes i think that being anti-war it's going to be pretty fucking popular among the democratic party's base joy what are you saying who are you where's joy bring back the old joy because this is not the joy behar that we all know and love who was anti-war who was an actual liberal i mean this just goes to show you that when it comes to foreign policy the overton window has shifted drastically to the right in this party. And yes, I mean specifically in this party, the Democratic Party, even if a lot of people like to say, look, they're moving to the left on economic issues because we have people like Kamala Harris and Cory Booker supporting Medicare for All and um, you know other things like free college. No, understand that they are moving to the right when it comes to foreign policy. So we're taking a couple steps forward, but more steps back overall. Because if we don't have an anti-war party, then that is devastating not just for the world but for our own interests because we should be using the money that we spend on war to help our own citizens but what we're seeing here is pro-war propaganda at the behest of the military industrial complex either wittingly or unwittingly but joy behar is a very smart person so 
I think that she knows what she's doing, and I think that she knows that Tulsi's anti-war stance is in fact going to resonate with the Democratic Party's base. But she instead just chooses to smear her and compare her to Donald Trump, who actually is a warmonger. But what you're doing is actually more damaging than that, because if you're saying that Tulsi Gabbard is like Trump because she's pro-peace, well, you're not just smearing Tulsi Gabbard by comparing her to Trump, but you're also giving Donald Trump credit he doesn't deserve, because again, he isn't just someone who is a fake non-interventionist, he's a war criminal. The very first military raid that he greenlit ended in the death of a young girl. So, I was so frustrated and just demoralized after watching this segment. I mean, how disgusting. An Iraq War veteran who is telling you, I saw war and what it does firsthand, all of the destruction it causes, and it just goes right over their heads. And then, embarrassingly enough, you have Anna Navarro, who basically, her career exploded because she's an anti-Trump conservative, saying, you know, I actually kind of agree with Trump here when it comes to intervention in Venezuela. Now, I love how she had to clarify and say, no, not military intervention. Intervention is intervention. Military intervention may be worst, but you have to understand that intervention in and of itself, be it sanctions, it's just a step that's necessary for actual military intervention. So, to see Tulsi Gabbard explain in such a perfect way why we should be anti-intervention and pro-peace, and then have them all just completely disregard everything she said there to smear her was disgusting. And I was incredibly frustrated throughout the entirety of this segment. I mean, wow. This is supposed to be, you know, a media that serves as a check on power. And it is doing pro-military industrial complex propaganda. And they're using it against a veteran who's telling you her firsthand experience with war absolutely disgusting. Kudos to Tulsi Gabbard. There's no way I would have remained that calm there as they were smearing me and using obvious warmongering propaganda talking points. Despicable. The CNN town hall with Amy Klobuchar was bad. In fact, it was atrocious. And usually I'll beat around the bush and I'll start off these analyses with a really long monologue. I really don't need to sugarcoat it. This was awful. It was boring. And it was probably even worse than the Howard Schultz town hall because I could enjoy that for the sake of hate watching it. But with Amy Klobuchar, I'm just ambivalent overall. I, I have no feelings for her. I just felt the need to um, go to sleep immediately whenever I heard her say anything because she just drones on and on and on without really saying anything meaningful or substantive. And really, I, I just, I don't know who is going to find what she's saying inspirational, who's going to feel motivated to come out and vote for her. And let me say something, because just telling you a little bit about myself should put things into perspective as to just how bad this was. I'm someone who, I cover politics for a living, right? Um, I'm constantly politically engaged, and back when I was a PhD student, I was working for my professors, and I would enjoy doing even the most tedious processes. I would jot down, you know, different voting results for individual precincts in the state of Oregon on spreadsheets for hours. I would create graphs based on, you know, my professor's research and data and samples and whatnot. Basically, things that other more normal people would find 
obnoxious and tedious, I enjoyed. So really, it takes a lot to bore me. It takes a lot to get me to want to tune out. And this made me want to tune out. It was just unbearable. And I know that the response will be, well, Mike, look, she's a wonk. So, of course, she's going to talk, you know, about really complex policy details and talk about things that are esoteric. I get that, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be unable to simplify very complex policy details. Bernie Sanders does it. Elizabeth Warren does it. Tulsi Gabbard does it. But if you can't explain your position concisely then you're not going to be effective at selling it to the American people. And as a result, you're going to be vulnerable in the general election against Donald Trump. And after hearing her speak now and being so just dreadfully bored, I am the most worried about her. And I hate saying that because it makes me sound petulant. It makes me sound like, you know, I'm a kid and I can't do what adults do and listen to, you know, the grown-ups speak. And I know that that's going to be the criticisms, but it was this was just bad. I think objectively it was bad. I mean, maybe it's subjective because I'm a progressive, but I think objectively people who are not engaged with politics will be turned off by watching this town hall. So to basically kick things off, this is how the town hall started. Someone who is a moderate Democrat asked, are you going to be the candidate for me, essentially? And Amy Klobuchar enthusiastically answered, yes. I'm a moderate Democrat with progressive leanings who believes in the American message of hope and opportunity for all. I am looking for a Democratic candidate who can make Donald Trump a one-term president and doesn't sacrifice a moderate vision to the leftist ideologies of outspoken progressives. I want to hear achievable goals that benefit minorities and the middle class now and are not pipe dreams for the future. Are you my candidate? Yes, I am. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, how long has it been? 30 seconds. Okay. Whew. Almost fell asleep there. <laughs> How exciting, Amy. Wow. And you know what that lady doesn't understand is she simultaneously wants to make Donald Trump a one-term president, which we all do, but she also wants a moderate. If you want Donald Trump to be a one-term president, then wouldn't you try something else than running another moderate? Because, I mean, I sound like a broken record, but we tried this a couple of years ago. Didn't work out too well. So wouldn't you naturally want to opt for someone who has the enthusiasm and momentum behind them, like Bernie Sanders? Nope. Uh, I am a centrist or moderate with some political or progressive leanings, I think is what she said. Look, I mean, there's going to be a really niche crowd of people that Amy Klobuchar is going to appeal to, but certainly... I really, I can't see how she's going to get much support. So you all know, I mean, that kind of sets the stage for the entire town hall. She is a moderate, and proudly so. And kudos to her for not trying to bullshit us and just saying, look, I'm, I'm a moderate. Take it or leave it. I like that, right? I like that she is at least being a straight shooter there. But when it comes to really specific policy questions, you'll see that she's not a straight shooter. So the question of whether or not she supports tuition-free public colleges came up, and the person who asked the question asked her very specifically for a yes or no answer. And, of course, 
she couldn't give that to him. And Don Lemon had to ask her for a yes or no answer. Um, so I graduated from college in 2017, uh, and I currently pay roughly the equivalent of my rent in student loans every month. Um, and, you know, I have friends that graduated six figures in debt. Here in New Hampshire, uh, students graduate on average with the largest, with the highest average student loan like debt in the nation. 36,000 or something like it's a, that. It's absurd. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'd like to ask you, uh, would you be willing to stand with my generation and end the student debt crisis by supporting free college for all? And would you include undocumented and formerly incarcerated people in that program? Okay. And if you could please just preface your answer with a clear yes or no, I would really appreciate okay. that. Thank you all so right. much. Okay. Let me answer you first of all. Um, I think we have to do everything to help our students afford college. Um, my idea is to make it easier to refinance, um, to start with your two-year degrees, the community colleges being free. That's something that President Obama um, was pushing. There's a reason I'll get to why I'm starting there instead of four-year. So I want to answer that question first for you. Um, and let you know that I also had student loans. And when I married my husband, he had tens of thousands of student loans to make you feel better. But I married him anyway. All right? <laughs> OK, so here's what we need to do. Uh, the first thing is we need to make it easier to afford college. And you need to do that by making it easier to refinance these loans, by extending Pell Grants, so it includes more students. Those are simply grants, right? So if you extend those Pell Grants, that's going to make it even easier. Um, because right now, it's for a limited number of students. And I think we should expand it uh, to more students. Um, I think that we should do as much as we can uh, with some of the um, other populations that you referred to, we've got to make it easier for people getting out of prison uh, to afford going to school, you name it. Uh, but the other thing I want to talk about here is something I know we're in a four-year degree school, a great school, but you also have in Manchester a two-year community college. And there's a lot of kids right now who are off the grid, right? They don't graduate from high school around the country, or they end up um, maybe barely graduating from high school. They accumulate debt in a four-year college. Then they end up not being able to either finish that college, or they end up not being able to get a job that pays for it. So right now, there are a big number of jobs that require certifications, two-year degrees, um, everything from welding to uh, technology to robotics, something big here in New Hampshire. I know Mr. Kamen with the Segway uh, educated our whole country on robotics. And they require various degrees. So one of the things that I want to do is really have a big discussion in our country about what we do about kids that aren't graduating from high school, kids that don't get to the point of being at this great college, right? And how we get them into the certifications, the two-year degrees, and make sure that we're paying for that because our economy needs that, and then go from there. So thank you for your question. So he did, he did ask you yes or no. Would you support no, free college for all? I am not for free four-year college for all, no. Thank you. So she's talking a lot but she's not saying anything. And I don't know if you were keeping track of time, but it took her three minutes to finally say, no, I am not for free four-year college for all. And she didn't explicitly say that until she was asked about it. She was asked for clarification. And I really think that the look on his face of the person who asked that question 
says it all. It tells you everything you need to know. Like, what a horribly disappointing answer. So let's look at what she supports. She supports free community college. Um, she thinks that we need to make it easier to afford college. Well, I mean, how revolutionary. Even a Republican would probably tell you that. Um, she says that we need to start by making it easier to refinance student loans and extending Pell Grants. I mean, this is all incrementalism that is not going to galvanize the base. Nobody's going to be excited to come out and vote for you, Amy. I, I just, I can't see why you even felt the need to run if you're running on this gradual list, you know, incrementalist, hyper-neoliberal agenda. It's it's boring. Nobody is going to think, ooh, I should come out and support Amy Klobuchar because she's going to make it a little bit easier for us to refinance student loans. I'm still going to have this debt for the rest of my life, but, you know, at least I could refinance it. Now, she was asked a very specific question when it comes to the issue of healthcare and Medicare for all. And I love the person who asked this question because she really was trying to get a no bullshit answer. She said, look, every other country has Medicare for all. Every modern industrialized country has it. So why are we so special that we can't get it? And as you're going to see here, Amy Klobuchar takes about two and a half hours to answer the goddamn question. Why can't we have Medicare for all? I have heard all the excuses why we can't have it in our country, while all the other industrialized countries have it and it seems to work. What makes us the exception? What has made us the exception, and thanks for that question, because what's been going on in this country is just wrong. You've got people that still can't afford their health care. You have people that can't afford their prescription drugs. And that's why I believe we have to get to universal health care in this country. And we have to make sure that we build on the work of the Affordable Care Act, which, by the way, was a major improvement. As you all know, people were getting kicked off their insurance for pre-existing conditions. I remember uh, just last summer, a little kid in a parade in a small town uh, with his mom, and she points at her little boy who has Down syndrome, and she said, this is a pre-existing condition. This is what a pre-existing condition looks like. And we fought that, and we won, and we protected the Affordable Care Act. But to me, it's a beginning and not an end. So what we need is to expand coverage so that people can have a choice for a public option. And that's a start, all right? And you can do it with Medicare. You could do it many ways, but you could also do it with Medicaid, something. Two hours later. If I can just jump in, because sure. more to her question, which is about Medicare for all. You can applaud, which is a Medicare yeah. for all. What's your reservation about supporting Medicare for all? Well, I think it's something that we can look to for the future, but I want to get action now. Uh, and I think the best way we do that is something that we actually wanted to do back when we were looking at the Affordable Care Act and we were stopped um, was trying to get a public option in there. Mm -hmm. And that is a way, if you all remember that debate, uh, that is a way to provide a public alternative that's real, even beyond the exchanges, uh, so that we can bring down the rates. And then we can look at other options, but we have to start somewhere. And I think we can do that much more immediately. So no Medicare for all? Uh, it, it could be a possibility in right. the future. I'm just looking at something that will work now. So if I didn't cut that clip down and edit it, you would have gotten three and a half minutes of her droning on about healthcare policy without really saying anything meaningful that would actually substantially benefit 
um, the country in terms of healthcare. She, at the end there, when she was asked for clarification, she said that she supports a public option, but I'm actually doubtful that she genuinely supports a public option because she didn't actually say that until Don Lemon asked her for a follow-up after she talked about all these other uh, incrementalist approaches to healthcare, like strengthen- strengthening the Affordable Care Act. And she boasts about Obamacare as if, you know, it was so great when, look, 30 million people were still uninsured and Obamacare, even if more people got access to health care, they were still left underinsured. So was it a step in the right direction? Sure. But what we need is actually a Medicare for all system. Something that's similar to our neighbors north of the border in Canada because they love it. And if you'll notice something about countries that adopt Medicare for all or some type of national health system, once they adopt it, they never go back because it works out really well. So the fact that she's not opting for that and she's only trying to say, well, you know, one day we can do Medicare for all. Look, just say it. We're never going to have Medicare for all. You agree with Hillary Clinton when she said Medicare for all will never, ever come to pass. And I need people to understand something. When somebody says that they want to get to universal, that's code for I don't support Medicare for all, but I don't want to explicitly tell you that. And I'm trying to let you down easily. So don't be disappointed because I do support universal. So I hope you'll pick up on that buzzword. I mean, this was awful. Because I just, I don't see how this can appeal to anyone. Now, sure, there's going to be a couple of people, like that lady in the audience who asked her, are you the candidate for me? Because I'm a moderate. But I mean, it, it just, I can't, I can't, like, I don't get this, right? I'm puzzled that she would choose to run when she's not running on anything. This isn't what we want to hear from a leader. Obama got elected on hope and change. So if you're going to be the president and you're going to put incrementalism and gradualist reform front and center, then I just, I can't see how you think that's going to behoove you. And especially how you think that's going to lead to Donald Trump being defeated. So I absolutely worry about her chances against Trump, but I'm not going to worry too much because I really would be surprised if she lasted long, you know, in the primary, but we'll see how it goes. I don't want to jinx it, but certainly to say that this was an unbearable town hall and very difficult for me to get through, that would be an understatement because I was bored to tears and I'd probably guess that anyone else who watched it was also bored to tears. So as the Democratic Party primary field takes shape, we're starting to see multiple camps emerge. So on one hand, we have the progressive camp, the people like Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Tulsi Gabbard, Andrew Yang, arguably Pete Buttigieg. Those are the individuals who are more progressive. And then you have the pseudo-progressive camp, individuals who are trying to rush to the left and out Bernie. Bernie, the people like Kirsten Gillibrand, Kamala Harris, who are trying to convince you that they're progressive, and even if they may not necessarily be very genuine in their support for things like Medicare for All, they're at least politically savvy in knowing how to read the room and knowing that their base is craving someone who's going to fight for them and fight for Medicare for All and the Green New Deal. And then you have a third camp, who are basically trying to run the most or the least inspiring campaigns ever by trying to outbore one another. And in this camp, I would put Amy Klobuchar here, I'd put Joe Biden here, I'd put Sherrod Brown here, and I'd also put John Delaney here. And if you're wondering who the hell John Delaney is, 
don't worry, you're not alone because he looks like the type of person who is maybe a dad who just experienced a midlife crisis and just bought a Lamborghini that he can't afford and is now choosing to run for president on a whim. And you'll get the sense that I'm right about him being in the most boring camp slash least inspirational camp when you read about what he said of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal. He said this via Twitter. The Green New Deal, as it has been proposed, is about as realistic as Trump saying that Mexico is going to pay for the wall. Let's refocus on what's possible, not what's impossible. Now, you can believe that if you want, Jeff, or Jim, John, whatever your name is, but it's still more realistic than your presidential aspirations. In fact, I think we're more likely to see Mexico actually pay for Trump's wall than we are to see you win a single primary. Because... You don't have a fucking chance and you are demonstrating that you're not going to have a chance because when you run a campaign that instead of it being hope, you're basically saying nope and that's your entire message, that's just not going to get anybody to feel encouraged to come out and vote for you. And first of all, we don't give a shit what you think because nobody knows who you are. And second of all, when we learn who you are, we're going to realize that you are a piece of shit. Because as Nathan Vardy of Forbes explains, John Delaney has made a bundle lending money at high rates to small businesses. He's also pretty good at avoiding taxes. So now you can see he's in this camp of most boring slash least inspirational because he's using right-wing talking points to throw cold water over progressive policy ideas that are overwhelmingly popular. I'll pass. Now, when it comes to Medicare for all, you have people who are kind of, they've got feet in different camps, right? I'd put Cory Booker in the pseudo-progressive camp, but also in the most boring camp, because even if he's supporting things like Medicare for all, he's not going to hesitate to cast doubt on the likelihood that we could ever get Medicare for all passed. Because as a Washington Post reporter, Sean Sullivan states here, he recently stated that he supports Medicare for all, but he doubts it'd be able to get the 60 votes needed to pass in the Senate. And since he won't get rid of the filibuster, then, of course, it will require 60 votes to pass. He also says that he is supportive of more incremental steps in lieu of Medicare for All that would fix our healthcare to a degree, such as lowering the age of Medicare to 55. Man, that's that's just so exciting. I can't think of anything that will get millennials more excited to come out and vote for you, Corey, than saying that they'll be able to get Medicare at 55 instead of 65. Wow. I mean, to think that these people believe they have a shot is hilarious. Now, not to toot my own horn or anything, but I warned you all about this like a couple of weeks ago when I talked about how Cory Booker wasn't serious about Medicare for All once he made it clear that he wouldn't be willing to get rid of the filibuster and truly fight for it. And now he's unfortunately proving me right. I'd like to be proven wrong if it means that the American people will be better off, but unfortunately, he's proving me right, and I don't think you're surprised about that. I'm certainly not surprised about it. Now, when it comes to Medicare for All, we recently learned that Sherrod Brown, a so-called progressive, doesn't like Medicare for All because he doesn't think it's practical. And in a recent CNN interview, he not only doubled down on that idea that Medicare for All isn't practical, but he basically tried to gaslight people who support Medicare for All in order to get him to think, in order to get them to think more specifically that his incrementalist approach is the way we should go. I think Medicare for all will take a while and it's difficult and it's selling it to people who now have insurance that would have to that would have to have their insurance plans canceled 
and move into a government plan. I think that's difficult. I want to help people now. That's why you do Medicare at 50. I want to build, again, I say, I want to build on the Obamacare, not repeal it with a whole new plan. So that was one of the most disingenuous things I've ever heard about Medicare for All. And I would have never expected someone like Sherrod Brown to say that because he said, quote, I want to build on Obamacare, not repeal it. So he's trying to frame Medicare for All as a repeal of the Affordable Care Act. And in doing so, he's trying to prime you to think that Medicare for All is right wing. Because what do Republicans want to do? They're the ones that want to repeal Obamacare. So if you support Medicare for all, then the logical conclusion is you must be aligned with Republicans and you must want to repeal Obamacare. And since Obamacare is good and you want to repeal something that's good, then you must be bad. I should be against you. That's what he's trying to prime you to think. It's incredibly disingenuous and it is a disgusting form of gaslighting that, again, I wouldn't have expected to come from someone like Sherrod Brown because he's someone who has a career that's more progressive. I think a lot of people view him as the third most progressive senator in the country, but now he's trying to gaslight us and getting you to think that building on the ACA is going to be enough? No, Sherrod, because if we just do that, people will continue to die. And he tries to make it as if he's the good guy. He says, I want to help people now. That's why you do Medicare at 50. Okay, but what about the people who are not 50? What do they do? They'd still die or go bankrupt. So you're not helping people now. You're helping some people now. By definition, that's an incrementalist approach. By definition, that's a neoliberal policy that will allow for the status quo to go on, to allow for private health insurers to rip us off because you're too afraid to actually fight them. So do you see how there's multiple camps? You've got progressives, pseudo-progressives, and you've got the most boring slash least inspirational camp. And I think that it's very clear that Sherrod Brown is in the latter camp, which is sad because I would have expected him to be in the pseudo-progressive camp, which isn't the progressive-progressive camp, but it's still more progressive than the alternative, which is the most boring-slash-least-inspirational. But, you know, with that being said, I'm fine with them. I'm fine with the John Delaney's and the Joe Biden's and the Sherrod Brown's all trying to outbore each other in this race. I'm fine with them proposing these incrementalist approaches, and um, basically try trying to run the least inspiring campaigns possible because I'm really looking forward to the entertainment value that will provide when they inevitably faceplant. Let's see how that works out for you. Because if you think that running an anti-progressive campaign is going to help you out, then that's just politically idiotic. It's It's showing that you're not politically savvy. It's showing that you're out of touch. It's showing that you don't know how to read the room. So I certainly have more respect for people like Kamala Harris, who at least know that if they want to win, they have to appeal to progressives. But by going in the opposite direction, like Joe Biden and Sherrod Brown, they think they can win by demoralizing progressives in hopes of, what, getting more moderates to vote for you? <laughs> Makes sense. Just weeks after Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez demonstrated how corrupt America's campaign finance system is, where you can become a lobbyist immediately after leaving Congress, she's already being proven right. And the individual who is proving her right is none other than former Democratic representative from her district who she beat, Joseph Crowley. 
Now, as Jenna Amatuli of HuffPost reports, former Representative Joe Crowley has joined the PASS USMCA coalition in an effort to help President Donald Trump's United States-Mexico-Canada trade agreement pass. I'm excited to join the PASS USMCA coalition, said Crowley in a press release. USMCA is a landmark trade victory for America's workers. My former colleagues should take action to ratify the agreement quickly. The longtime congressman, who was defeated in the June 2018 primary by progressive Democrat Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has signed on as an honorary co-chairman. After leaving Congress last year, it was announced earlier this week that Crowley would join the law and lobbying firm Squire Patton Boggs. Past USMCA is a coalition of business, trade, and advocacy groups that is working to promote the passage of Trump's United States-Mexico-Canada Agreement, which will replace the North American Free Trade Agreement, otherwise known as NAFTA. So, it's already bad enough that he is becoming a lobbyist, but what makes matters worse is that he's lobbying to the benefit of Donald Trump. I mean, this says everything that you need to know about what's wrong with American politics. This revolving door where you leave Congress and become a lobbyist has got to stop. And the revolving door, understand, it goes both ways. So if you contribute to a candidate, specifically a presidential candidate, as was the case with many of the individuals serving in President Obama's administration, you can go on to work for said administration because if you'll recall, President Obama appointed Tom Wheeler to the FCC who was a Comcast lobbyist who also happened to donate to Obama's campaign. And also, do you remember the debacle when Obama wanted to make a complete nitwit the ambassador to Norway who knew nothing about Norwegian politics? That was another example of the revolving door. Betsy DeVos donated money to President Trump's campaign and became education secretary. That was another example of the revolving door. So it's going to be the case that if you want to get involved in politics, you don't necessarily have to start with city council and work your way on up to you know the state legislature and then Congress. All you have to do is be wealthy contribute to a politician, and then you can get yourself a job. Or, in this case, all you have to do is look out for special interests, and then they'll give you a job when you leave. Ajit Pai, head of the FCC currently, was legal counsel for Verizon. What does he do? Gets in and does Verizon's bidding, will probably leave and work for Verizon again. This is a problem, And a lot of people acknowledge the problem, but we're not fixing it. Now, why are we not fixing this problem? It's because how do you get people in Congress to tie their own hands, essentially? How do you get them to do something that will not go in their favor, that is against their own self-interest? Because you can become rich when you leave Congress by becoming a lobbyist and working for one of the large multinational corporations that you regulated as a lawmaker. So how do you get them to legislate against their own self-interests? And I don't have an answer for that. It's just this conundrum. It's a problem. So this is a representation of every single thing that is wrong with our political system. And it's why corruption is rampant in U.S. politics, because of things like this. 
And this isn't something that, you know, Joe Crowley is embarrassed about. He put out a press release talking about how he's a lobbyist who's now trying to lobby at the behest of Donald Trump to pass his trade agreement, which is just NAFTA light. Unbelievable. And this was someone who was the ultimate Democrat. We always hear about how Bernie Sanders isn't a Democrat, but then you have Republican Democrats like Joe Manchin voting with Democrats. You have Joe Crowley, who was in leadership of the Democratic Party, now lobbying on behalf of Trump. I mean, it's just, we're comically corrupt as a country. And really, there's no peeps about this from the mainstream media maybe people would be outraged more and maybe congress would feel more pressure to act if the mainstream media actually did their job but they're not doing it and as a result nothing is happening so just the short story here that i wanted to share where aoc was proven right just weeks later by her former opponent amazing amazing so for quite some time i think it's been the case that anyone who's used the term liberal media in a sentence you just kind of write them off you don't take them serious because if you know anything about the mainstream news you really don't have to do research you just have to watch it's easy to see that they have a pro-establishment and a pro-corporate bias and since the overton window in the country has shifted so far to the right i think that mainstream media reflects that right-wing overton window which is why you see so many attacks against progressives like bernie sanders alexandria ocasio-cortez we just saw last week the attacks against ilhan omar you see the attacks against progressive policies like a Green New Deal, Medicare for All. You see them criticizing Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on Morning Joe because she applauded Amazon's decision to pull out of the New York deal because it was a horrible deal for New York City. So you see that there's this right-wing bias in the media, and I think it's actually more accurate to refer to it as conservative media. And there's a new story that came out that really demonstrates exactly why that's the case. And anyone who, like myself, thought it was more accurate to call it conservative media should feel vindicated because this story in Media Matters by Simon Malloy explains that CNN has now hired a Trump loyalist to lead all of its 2020 news coverage, which is problematic to say the least. So Simon explains, early on in the Trump administration, then Attorney General Jeff Sessions ran into a staffing problem as he took over the Justice Department. According to the Washington Post, Sessions very much wanted to hire longtime Republican political operative Sarah Isger as his chief spokeswoman, but she had criticized President Donald Trump repeatedly during the 2016 Republican primaries, and thus her prospects for a Justice Department job stalled. To break the logjam, the Post reported Isker paid Trump a cordial visit during which she told the president she was on board with his agenda and would be honored to serve him. The incident was noteworthy when the Post reported it last April because it demonstrated both the president's overriding need for loyalty and the willingness of Republican operatives to kiss Trump's ring as a means of career advancement. The story has taken on new relevance now that the same Sarah Isger, who personally expressed her loyalty to the sitting 
president has reportedly been hired as a political editor at CNN. In certain respects, this is a baffling move by CNN. According to Politico, which first broke the news, Isger will assume her editorial role at the network in March and will coordinate political coverage for the 2020 campaign. Isger is a career political operative. She's worked for Sessions, Senator Ted Cruz, the Republican National Committee, and Carly Fiorina's failed 2016 presidential campaign, but there is no indication that she has ever worked in any capacity as a journalist unless you count appearing as a pundit on cable news, which you should not. CNN has hired a person with zero experience producing news to oversee the production of news. Not only that, but the network has turned over its 2020 political coverage to a person who is more or less a walking conflict of interest. Politico notes that Isger, because of her employment history, will not play a role in covering the Department of Justice. How on earth can a cable news channel have a political editor who can't cover the Department of Justice? The workings of the Justice Department are at the heart of some of the most critically important political stories of the Trump era. The Russia investigation and the special counsel's office are going to be hugely important topics for the 2020 campaign, and Democratic candidates are likely going to spend considerable energy attacking DOJ policies that Isker defended, such as Sessions' legal assault on sanctuary laws for undocumented immigrants. It doesn't make much sense to have a political editor who has never worked in journalism and it doesn't make any sense to have a political editor who is walled off from important stories that will be central to the very coverage she is supposed to be coordinating. And those problems rest uneasily atop issues that arise from Iskra's partisan leanings and her loyalties to current and former high-ranking Trump officials. Iskra's presence will lead to persistent, difficult-to-answer questions about how her politics and conflicts of interest are shaping the network's 2020 coverage. CNN's choice of a Trump administration veteran does, however, fit in with the network's fantastically self-defeating strategy of hiring pro-Trump mercenaries who shill on behalf of a president and administration that delight in demonizing CNN. The journalism industry does not lack for talented, experienced professionals who are desperate for work, but CNN opted to give this important job to a Jeff Sessions acolyte who has never worked as a journalist. That sure feels like the network sabotaging its own interests in order to send a conciliatory message to a political movement that will always view it as an enemy of the people. The story is so bad, it's one of those few instances where it speaks for itself and you really don't have to explain it. This is just a baffling move by CNN. It's against their own self-interest because why would you play ball with an administration who constantly refers to you as the enemy of the people? It makes no sense. And AOC put it best here. Sorry, didn't get the latest memo after 1,000 experienced plus qualified journalists of all stripes were let go without warning a few weeks ago and still looking for work. Are we still pretending that hires like these are evidence of a meritocracy? And that's exactly it. You fire people who are qualified. You hire someone who's not qualified, who's biased, who frankly is a political hack, and we're supposed to take you seriously as a serious news network, CNN? Really? Look, this is why people don't like CNN on both the left and the right, albeit for different reasons. The right thinks that there's this anti-Trump bias, when really it's a sensationalist bias, and Trump allows them to generate these sensationalist news stories, but the left sees it for what it actually is, a pro-corporate news outlet that is 
brazenly pro-establishment. And since Trump is the new establishment, since his loyalists are the establishment, then that's what they're going with. I mean, I'm trying to rationalize it, but there's really no way to rationalize this irrational decision. It doesn't make sense. It's, It's frankly stupid. So don't let people tell you that there's a liberal bias in the media and that the liberal and that the media is liberal rather because anyone who says that they should be disregarded because they're not serious actors they're lying to you what they're really saying is i want the media to be more conservative because that's what it is the media is conservative cnn is conservative and they may be socially liberal they may from time to time do a pretty good story they may have some reporters who are actually great and do objective work but when you tune into cnn all you see is hackiness ranging from chris saliza and harry enton trying to rationalize absurd 2020 rankings and then you hear idiots like rick santorum spouting off nonsense and from time to time we'll have someone who will come on and actually tell the truth and be like a breath of fresh air like nina turner but that should be the norm it shouldn't be something that is you know the exception manufacturing consent you've got to read this book by Noam Chomsky, because basically what it says is we all commend the media for being the fourth estate and for basically being the supposed fourth branch of government, an unofficial branch of government, because it's supposed to be a check on government power and government tyranny. But basically, the thesis of this book is that what ends up happening is you have a corporate media in the United States that serves the establishment's interests and is more loyal to the establishment than state-run media outlets we see around the world. That is a sad state of affairs, not just for media and having an educated populace, but it's a sad state of affairs for democracy, who refuses to speak truth to power and who just broadcasts the message of the powerful rather than challenging it. Well, that's all that I've got for you guys today. Thank you so much for tuning in if you've made it this far in the program and listen to me talk for that long. Before we leave, I want to take a moment, as usual, to thank all of our Patreon and PayPal contributors. And also, I want to send a special shout out to all of our listeners on iTunes and SoundCloud. Thank you all so much. This has been The Humanist Report. I'm Mike Figueredo. I'll see you all next week. Take care. Girly Mike Fettuccini needs your support on Patreon. What a loser. Visit patreon.com slash humanist report to support the low ratings humanist report. Sad. My views are much higher.